for Lagmir. Okay, I'd like to call to order the City Council meeting of April the 18th, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting, starting with a joint <coughs> study session meeting with the Planning Commission. Welcome. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll for both the City Council members and the Planning Commission? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Black? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sutton? Here. Chair Rosman? Here. <laughs> Vice Chair Royster? Commission Member Allen? Here. Commission Member Heiser? Here. Commission Member Rutherford? Here. Commission Member Single? Here. Commission Member Tim Chisholm? Here. Great. Okay, as I mentioned, our study session tonight is a special joint meeting with the Planning Commission. After our study session, we will be meeting in executive session to discuss two issues. First, the potential acquisition of real property, and second, potential litigation. If you're a member of the public joining us by Zoom this evening, please exit and log off the Zoom feature during our executive <coughs> session. You will then need to log back into Zoom when our regular meeting reconvenes <coughs> at 7.30. Uh, so let's begin our special joint meeting, and I'll kick it off to the city manager. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Welcome, planning commissioners and council members. So we have a brief presentation that Allison Zyke, our Deputy Director of Planning and Building, is going to make. And then we're discussing the draft 2023-2025 planning work program. And staff and planning commissioners are looking for council feedback and input and then a discussion afterward between the two groups. So with that, please take away, Allison. Great. Thank you and good evening, everyone. Um, it's fun to be here on the floor with all of you. Um, I wanted to go over quickly Matt? just a... No okay. Um, I wanted to go over quickly just a few slides to cover what changes we made from the 2022 to tw and to 2024 work program and the current one we're discussing the 23 to 25 draft planning work program tonight. Um, I've got four or five slides for you just kind of pointing out the highlights um, and summarizing the staff memo. So I'm going to jump into that. So first, just wanted to show all of you, planning commissioners and council members, what we've completed that was on the 22 to 24 planning work program. And it's, it's several things, tree code amendments, which we still have ongoing work on, and we'll cover that a little bit. I'm not going to read all of these to you, but we've, we've gotten quite a bit done. So there's several things that were on the last work program that you'll see have come off the draft work program for 23 to 25 because we have completed them. Um, the next category is just some projects that were on the last work program that we're still working on now. So we've started work on these. We're continuing work on them now. Um, that's the station area plan, the urban center designation, which is nearing completion, um, the comprehensive plan update, of course, wireless uh, service facility regulation updates. We're taking that to hearing in May, so that's getting close. Um, Community-initiated amendment requests, we're just starting work on those. Those will uh, kind of follow along with the comp plan update process. And then the miscellaneous code amendments, which Council is actually um, hopefully taking action on later tonight. There's a few projects that were on the 22 to 24 work program that we haven't started yet. Um, and in the memo, we discuss a little bit some of the factors as to why we haven't been able to start work on those yet. So you'll see them continue in the current work uh, draft work program. So 
some things follow through as just kind of an annual renewal, so sustainability master plan implementation, urban forestry work program impl implementation. Some of the ones that we haven't started that we thought we might have by now are uh, the amendment uh, review to look at increasing school capacity citywide, um, updates to our geohazard regulations, um, looking at affordable housing incentives um, and parking policies. Those are two things where we think we'll lay the policy groundwork with those with the comp plan update. And so kind of pushing zoning code amendments on those two items until we talk about bigger policy implications with the comp plan update. And then the sign code update is another one that we haven't started work on yet. There's a few projects that we're on the 22 to 24 work program that we've taken off the draft 23 to 25 work program um, because they either just, we've got a lot of stuff that we wanna do and so we had a discussion with planning commission over a couple different meetings about were there any projects that really are kind of lower in priority now when we start talking about adding new work to our program. Um, so those you see on the screen, the Homes Point overlay updates, um, the Norkirk and Highlands Light Industrial Study really isn't necessary anymore because we've done that work with the station area plan. And then um, the CKC design guidelines and regulations um, is another one we've talked about with the station area plan a lot as it relates to a good portion of the CKC through downtown. Um, so it could, it could go back on the work program at some point, but at this point we've taken it off the 23 to 25 draft work program. And then we've added a few new projects um, into the 23 to 25 uh, planning work program. Um, you'll see them on the screen, I won't go through all of them, but I uh, did wanna highlight missing middle and ADU optimization. Um, and on the next one, just kind of some of the general guidance we got from planning commission over our discussions with them at their retreat in February and then at another study session, um, I think in March, um, was just th that planning commission and I'll let you all um, discuss more specifically, but I think what staff really heard from Planning Commission was that looking at our middle housing and ADU regulations and trying to really increase the uptake of those was a priority and kind of the utmost priority, and it should be the next new project, and so that's how we tried to draft the, the draft work program in front of you. Um, increasing school capacity was another high priority, trying to figure out how we can do that and make sure it's there when the school district needs it. Um, and then also any projects that could potentially be getting in the way of enabling housing production are ones that we should be looking for opportunities to get the work done sooner rather than later. Um, and then also I think the, the feedback that staff heard from Planning Commission was that as we look at how we tackle the work program that we need to be identifying opportunities to streamline where we can. And with that I'll, I'll throw it over to you Madam Mayor, um, but we have a couple suggested uh, discussion topics for Council and Planning Commission. Okay. Um, so, do we want to start right into the draft work work program, or do we want to go back to your priority areas? I mean, either way. Um, I mean, we can start here. Okay. I'm not sure this is much of a lead off. <laughs> I mean, I guess I can I can start by just saying, you know, Allison made it clear that all of the housing stuff is our top priority. We looked at, you know, all the things that we have to get done. So there's the must do's updates that are zoning code requirements, comp plan, et cetera. But basically anything that is a like to do but not a requirement is going to be kind of pushed down below housing because housing is going to be our top priority moving forward. 
So that, that means looking at missing middle housing and ADU. Um, we think that the zoning is there, but we really want to dig into like what what's the barrier for getting more stuff done. Like, you know, we've seen through the housing dashboard that we've seen some uptick, but not as much as we'd like. So um, we're looking at trying to figure out like where are the sticky points to help make it happen. Um, that includes, you know, talking also about parking and hazardous slopes and um, like soil surveys, et cetera. So basically want to look at overall, what can we do to make sure that we get the most housing as possible moving forward. And then on the school capacity, we did talk about um, trying to figure out if the school district has any near-term plans. Um, that is a priority for us, but if there's no immediate plans, maybe it can be done a little bit later. However, if the school district said, hey, we want to do something, then we would push it to the very top. That sounds reasonable. I, I guess I, I can look to Allison and, and Adam. So much legislation is being processed right <laughs> now with regard to housing. And I don't know if you guys have had any discussion about how that's going to impact. We as talked about it in our planning um, or a retreat, but at that point there was so much stuff in the air and, you know, we've got five days left in session and there's still some stuff that's up in the air. So, um, but there's clearly going to be some changes to even our missing middle and ADU codes. So um, clearly we, we plan to, you know, carve up a, a portion of our time to do that, but until next week, we don't know 100% where things are going to land. I'm going to be informal. This is this is a joint meeting. So, Neil. Well, soils is kind of related to the like uh, geologic geologic hazard map that we did like three years ago. Um, basically, it adds a okay. Go ahead. Obviously, it reflects the priority that we have going on. Um, but in that, I wanted to explore what, what what you guys are thinking about analyzing when it comes to those geological hazards. Um, and I guess I'm also curious. I mean, we talk a lot about parking, but I'm curious what you guys are thinking with parking too, so that we can give you guys feedback on that. Um, with the like geologic hazard map, it got pretty well overhauled like three years ago. Um, but we're finding. Um, through like talking to people who have been trying to do ADUs or cottage developments, et cetera, that um, sometimes there may be like an onerous requirement for 
um, new construction for things like ADUs where an ADU on a parcel that already has a home on it and a garage that they're having to do a full geotechnical report. So looking into, like clearly we do have some real hazardous areas with some really steep slopes, but we also have areas that kind of fall into that area in the map that may not need the same level of intensity and LIDAR work. And so it's, it's more, not by itself, it's more within the, when we're looking at ADUs and other missing middle housing to make sure that we're not blocking stuff from happening because of an overly um, rigid requirement. So this is with a focus of making land available. Or not even land available. Um, one, um, well, make it a lot less expensive and a lot fewer hoops to jump through. Um, so I, like an expedited process for dealing with. Well, it's also, you know, if you're hazard. you're trying to build an ADU on a piece of property that already has a house and like a detached garage on it, yep. um, do we really need a full soil study? Yep. Probably not. But right now we're requiring the same level of geotechnical work for that little ADU as we are for like a brand new 5,000 square foot single family home. Great. Well, I can't speak for the rest of my council members, but anything we can do to expedite the process for more of that type of housing, especially that, that type of housing that could actually be affordable today, I'm a big fan of. Um, can I ask, there's also the parking question. Um, is that, I assume we're looking at parking the way that our city and the council has been looking at parking as a, a barrier? Um, okay. Yeah. Again, I think that probably falls in the same category. Of specifically within the housing conversation. Yep. And then on the um, on schools, I'm curious how recent our most recent conversation, I mean, we you, our, our work group meets with the school district every other month or every quarter or so. I'm just curious, especially because we've all, you know, we've all watched the news and we've all heard the news from Bellevue and, and yet our council hasn't really had a conversation about that. And I'm wondering what our school's work group has heard most recently from our school district just as far as prioritizing capacity? Yeah, so that's a good question. In our last meeting with them, this was something that was raised, um, was that the, the school district raised as far as the um, slight decline in enrollment. It wasn't as significant as some of the other local school districts have seen, and so um, it's not as drastic. That said, to me, the conversation and in the conversations we've had with the school district around looking at rezoning school property is not just about school capacity, but could potentially also be for workforce housing or other uses as well. So to me, I have a couple other notes I can get into later, but in, in my mind, um, this is, could very much be tied to housing potentially as well. And so I think it is something that's important for us to continue to look at and continue to prioritize under that. That's a really good point. Good. Hey, uh, I mean, it was a question that was raised at the last School meeting. We, by the way, we meet quarterly with the uh, school district leadership. So that includes um, the superintendent and, and, and the deputies. Uh, and so this is something we talk about regularly. And, you know, it, it was often, it came up because of what you read about the Bellevue School District having to actually close schools, right? Uh, and so we wanted to understand, you know, is that, does the Lake Washington School District foresee something similar occurring here? And what they said was, while enrollment is down for like kindergarten, first grade and stuff, they're seeing expanded enrollment for middle school, uh, high school, because you're kind of feeding the bulge in the system is what's happening right now. So 
it's still kind of uncertain what's going to occur in the lower grades. But you know, with all the new development, other things, you know, I think that's still something that we need to continue to follow. Uh, but I agree with uh, Amy about you know, there's other things in just school capacity that we need to be thinking about. Um, and the fact that some of this stuff does take years and years of advanced planning and funding and to, to really occur. So you do want to get way out ahead of it, right? And not wait until it becomes um, a, you know, a significant issue. Yeah. Great. Um, Amy, or Kelly. Turn up the microphone. I can't hear from here. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, it, almost to the point when um, you, when the legislative session's over, good pieces of this are going to get thrown out, and other things are going to be prioritized. We're doing almost doing this a little early. And thank you for the conversation on um, the schools because I had the same questions. What the two things that flagged for me that are pushed out till the 2025 is parking and curb management. And um, to me, they're the same issue in that uh, we have a, we are increasing our density and people are using rideshare more, they're using shuttle buses to get to their employment, they're using Uber Eats to pick up their dinner. I was at dinner downtown on Saturday and I just watched the stream <laughs> of drivers coming on up and picking up orders and so, I feel strongly that it's not something that we can wait two years to look at, but I also recognize very clearly that you have finite resources. You have finite time and finite meetings, and we have finite staff, so I'm not sure how we can integrate curb management and parking policy. Well, my suggestion is that whatever we end up, we create policies around the station area plan and, and expand them from there. Um, because again, as we get more dense and we're encouraging people not to have cars and we want to reduce parking, we're going to have issues with curb management. I did notice that in our budget, um, we had allocated a half a million dollars to do a parking analysis. Are we still going to do that sooner rather than later? Because that will inform our parking policy. That is happening. Um, okay. It's uh, so it's part of the overall downtown paid parking study, yeah. um, and so we are collecting, going to be collecting data on parking in downtown, and yeah, that will absolutely influence our um, ultimate recommendations regarding parking. I guess I would underscore what you were saying, um, Kelly, about the fact that we're tooling around with the idea of lower parking minimums in the station area plan right now. So that functions like as almost like a good pilot project. Mm -hmm. We're really pushing parking maximums to. You know, the lowest levels I think that we've ever seen in the city, and we can see how that performs in the station area, both in terms of incentivizing development, but also, you know, how traffic is functioning in the area as well. We're not going to have a ton of projects immediately, but we'll have some hopefully, and we'll be able to see how that performs, and that will influence how aggressive we want to be in pushing parking minimums or maximums in the rest of the city as well. And we saw that coming out of the legislature too, right? Reducing parking. Mm. So, and I do feel like, again, that, and we're not going to have the immediate density in the stationary plan, but we are going to have curb conflicts. I mean, we're already recognizing that now. So, 
So again, uh, my appeal for try to figure that out. Um, and one little thing on the tree code implementation, and you know that breaks my heart that we <coughs> have to set that aside, but I understand, or delay. You wrote the GMPC appeal, and I don't think that's what you meant. G Growth Management Growth Hearings Board. Board. Sorry, <laughs> HB. Okay, okay, so I saw GMPC. Um, and also, I've mentioned this before, but our housing strategy plan, which again is part of this housing string that we're doing, is five years old. Mm -hmm. So is it time to update our housing strategy plan <laughs> as we look at all of our housing issues and where we want to go from here? And shout out to Rodney, who served with me on the housing strategy advisory group. So thank you. That's right. Yeah, it was intended to be, you know, roughly a five-year plan. Um, I think, you know, the, the approach that we're suggesting is, which we can change, is to do the comp plan first to get that um, done because the housing element, especially this year with all the new county requirements and all the new state requirements, is going to be incredibly robust. It'll generate, I think, a lot of new ideas and hopefully a lot of innovation for housing in the, in the city. So what we're recommending is to get the housing element done as part of our comp plan update and then look at the, um, the housing strategy plan again to see what needs to be freshened up with that. So uh, we're suggesting a two-step process. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Great. I'll just the quick logistical note on that too is that we're, we're really working hard this year to do a lot of great outreach and engagement with the community on a lot of these bigger policy topics. So as a logistical matter, I think that's why we tried to put some of the actual code amendment discussions about them afterwards so that we could benefit those processes by the outreach we're doing now with the comp plan. So that was one of the reasons for the two-step process as well. Okay, go to Jay. Thank you. Oh, did I skip you, Amy? You called me in. <laughs> well, see how, and, and you had so much to add. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Thank you, Penny. Um, well, this is a great, I feel like I've already learned so much just from our discussion tonight, um, in addition to reading the packet. So thank you for this great discussion and for all the hard work that went into this. These are not easy issues to prioritize. These are all really important things, right? Um, I appreciate what Kelly said about them being intersectional. Um, I agree with that. I mentioned with the um, school capacity, um, as well as some of the other issues. First of all, I was really, really excited to see some of the things that are being prioritized in here. Um, the home occupancy allowances, you know, I've been talking about corner stores for years. Every time we bring up anything slightly related, I'm like, let's do corner stores citywide. Like, how can we do this? I remember bringing up with different neighborhood association things with our active transportation plan. You know, it's not just about having safe ways to get around our neighborhoods, but places to go to, right, to connect us. It's so valuable in so many ways. It's, you know, um, checks our value boxes of equity and sustainability. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but so thank you, thank you so much for having that on here and for prioritizing that. That's something I think could have a huge um, potential long-term impact on our communities and, um, and making us really connected in so many ways. So thank you for that. Also on the housing, on the vehicle electrification, um, <clears throat> thank you for those, I really appreciate that. Um, I've already mentioned the school capacity potentially on the um, on the or the housing on the school capacity issue, so I won't repeat my comments on that. Another issue that I think is really closely tied to housing that also mm -hmm. is really important is the um, Holmes Point overlay that was being taken off of here. Uh, as we know, housing and trees are really closely tied, right? Per the conversations that we've had before on this issue, and also if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, the citywide tree code update process was started years ago when the Finhole Neighborhood Alliance was updating their neighborhood plan. 
Um, and at the time, the council said, well, we'll let's first look citywide at the tree code, and then we'll come back to Holmes Point Overlay. So the folks in Finn Hill have been waiting quite a few years. As we all know, this process has taken much longer than we anticipated. I know that I am partially to blame for that, as are others on the council who wanted us to you know, pause and take another look at it. Um, and so I think that it's, you know, it's only fair for us to continue to look at that in some capacity. Uh, I think a good starting point uh, would be for staff to bring back to council a comparison of the current Holmes Point overlay and the, um, and the new tree code that we've implemented, uh, or that we've passed, uh, and so we can look at the differences. Um, I'd also be curious to know currently, you know, what would supersede what as far as those plans go, right? There are some differences between the two, so if somebody in Holmes Point, and that may be an easy answer, you're just gonna tell me the Holmes Point overlay would apply and not the city would, but there's some in which the new, the new tree codes are stricter than the old Holmes Point overlay, and so I just would, I'd be curious to know, is it just the stricter of the two? Is it that one always supersedes the other for the Holmes Point area? Um, I think there's just more that we could at least explore. We could see if there's any like low-hanging fruit um, that, would, that would satisfy some folks who've been waiting for quite a few years there, so maybe not as robust of a process, but do some sort of interim process to at least be fair to those folks. I've heard from a couple of property owners in Holmes Point that they've been waiting for years for this to happen because they have that one tree that's you know, costing them thousands of dollars a year because of the stuff it's dropping on their roof or whatever, right? And so I would love to have a way for us to have some flexibility for those families that have been waiting for a really long time for this, um, for looking at the Holmes Point overlay um, because the whole city is benefiting right now that we did that process first. Um, so want us to look at that. You know, I recently spoke with some folks from uh, Finn Hill Neighborhood Alliance, and I think some of their asks are not as complicated, right? If things they're looking for, it might be something we can look at, like um, allow maybe having a little bit more flexibility, like I mentioned, for homeowners to maybe not as flexible as the um, citywide plans are, but maybe allowing for like one tree a year to be removed or something along those lines. Um, and then they also have some ideas with respect to um, development and how to maintain the tree canopy on Holmes Point. So anyway, like I said, I think it's something that maybe with not a huge effort, we could at least come back to council or planning commission with a comparison and an explanation of kind of what would supersede to see if it's something that there's something that we could proceed with there. Um, I think that's, yeah, I agree also with um, Kelly's uh, comments on the curb management. That's something that We've been hearing from folks that we, they wanna see us implement really soon, both from businesses and from um, community members in the community. So I'd love to see something happen sooner there. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Well, first, thank you for all the work that you're doing. I know that some of it is uh, controversial within the community. You've heard a lot of public input and just wanted to say that the work that the commission does to uh, get recommendations to us uh, helps us tremendously, and I know your workload rivals ours uh, some months, so really appreciate that. And I appreciate the thinking in, in this work plan. I wouldn't question any of these priorities. The focus on housing is right on. Um, I, I, I understand the concerns with parking and other things, but I, I certainly wouldn't bump anything in that's happening this year, 24, to, to move those forward. I, I do like the idea of using the station area as kind of a planning area, and if that discussion as a 
uh, a pilot area, and if that discussion already is gonna include parking, maybe there's an opportunity, but I certainly wouldn't bump any of the priorities. Um, as we're talking about increasing school capacity, one question for John and Amy on the um, school district coordinating committee, maybe for staff is, uh, I've seen signs up that Kirkland Middle School near Crestwoods Park has is going through a master plan update and just wanna make sure that given the timing of what we're looking for any changes that the school district has the flexibility to do what they intend to do and uh, just to check in with them on that master plan and make sure that um, they're not overly constrained with what they uh, need for middle school uh, population. Because I, uh, given the recent remodel of Kirkland Middle School, I'm surprised that they're already doing an update, so there, there may be a need there. Thank you. Good point. Angela. So I, I do want to first just say to Amy's points on wanting to bump stuff up. That's where we really got stuck on um, when we were looking at this work program is it's like we need another column <laughs> to be able to do all the things. Um, but we ultimately decided, well, the tree stuff is very important. And I like your idea of maybe seeing if there's some small tweaks, but that the housing situation is so dire that we really understood that like we couldn't bump housing down to make room for other stuff is really where we landed. Um, and on the parking, um, I like using the station area in general as a very great like pilot for the rest of the city. However, it's going to take a while to have anything get built out. So I would hate to like wait on other parts of the city while we're waiting on data, you know, even if somebody starts a project today, like it's going to be at least three to five years before we see any relevant data out of that area. So with that, I wanna make sure, um, you know, we are bringing back the affordable housing component next week. And I wanna really make sure we do everything we can to get the station area building so that we can then also use that data in other parts of the city. So. This, the sooner we can get it built, the sooner we can start using it as an actual pilot versus just a pilot thought exercise. Thank you, Angela. John T. Thank you. Um, Council Member Falcon, I'm not sure if I can hear you. Um, the one part of the school capacity issue and, and maybe getting back to John, can you turn on your mic? The one part of the school capacity issue that I just want to make sure doesn't get lost is that if we increase population density within the station area plan, that we place the school capacity increase close enough to the population density that we don't have to bus people. And the minimization of busing, I think, is going to be critical to this conversation. And what the superintendent told us when he came to visit the planning commission was that we don't want to send 40 buses into the station area plan every morning and then have them take the kids out and then 40 more buses back there in the afternoon. And so I, I, I wanna prioritize this issue. I think it's a great issue and I wanna also try to get more information about where we expect population density so the school inc capacity increases are geographically consistent with that population density. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, John. Thank you. So. Uh, as a planning commission alum, uh, I remember when this used to be like half. <laughs> <the age. laughs> 
and we still thought it was a lot, and now it's you've doubled it. So that's it's amazing how much um, how much work we have ahead of us, and how much you've accomplished so far. So just again, want to kind of reiterate our thanks for all the hard work and um, and for sitting through you know some really lengthy public hearings. You take that um, that on and hear directly from the public in detail on a number of the land use issues, so thank you for that. That's, that's, a, that's a hard thing at times, um, but it's, it's really important. And to get your feedback into the recommendations uh, that you hear from the public is, is something that um, I know I take seriously along with others. Um, a couple things just kind of that came to mind as I was listening to others talk on parking. Parking is such a huge subject that if we could break it down into areas where we could have kind of, I don't even know if that there's a low-hanging fruit in parking sometimes, <laughs> maybe. My, my, pro my proposition for a parking commission hasn't gone. Oh, that there used to be one. There used to be one. That went away um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But I guess, you know, one of the things that have been on my mind for a while with parking is like the downtown is an, is a, is an example where you don't see any restaurants on Park Lane to the east of uh, Main Street, right? That's because of parking. It's because of our parking requirements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see at least us come in and kind of agree on something there as a starting point and then work out. We did, uh, some of you weren't around, um, but we did a right-sized parking evaluation. I don't. I don't, was that like 10, 12 years ago? Like King County did the data collection. They did the bulk of the work. We All we had to do was take that and implement it into the code. That was several years by itself, and we didn't actually end up implementing some of the recommendations because it was so controversial. And that just was multifamily. It was just focused on multifamily housing. Uh, so I just, I just want to throw out that Let's try to figure out the places that we can be most effective early on and not go, let's do everything and then not do anything, right? Uh, so that, that would be my, my one thing I've learned over the years <laughs> with parking. Um, and then the other thing is that I, I totally support where you have landed. I thought you've done a great job in prioritizing uh, uh, the things that we, we have to do. And then finally, I, I do want to just talk about kind of interaction a little bit. Maybe this is a, a later subject, but interaction between the council and the planning commission. Uh, obviously, we value that greatly, and we want to hear from you. We want to hear your honest opinions, um, um, and at times they're going to be different than where than where than where we land, right? As a council or as individual council members, even uh, one of the things that I know that's really helpful for me as a council member is when. Uh, a, a representative of the Planning Commission comes to the council meeting and is able to speak and provide a little bit more context to how you landed on a recommendation at times. And that's, typically that's, that always happened in the past. I, I know that it hasn't. Um, maybe it was just through COVID or whatever, but I think it's a really important thing to, to happen to where you can, and I know you, Angela, you've, you've, you've been at several meetings, but there have been times where there hasn't been a representative, and I think that's just really helpful. Uh, and to provide context on both sides, because not you, it's not always unanimous either on the Planning Commission. So, 
it's, it's just good to hear that. So that would be my one thing to think about and encourage. Thank you. Thank you, John. Toby. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, of course, I'll ditto what all my colleagues have been saying about uh, uh, the volume of work and the good work that's being done. Um, it's, it, it can be astounding at times, and I, I don't know that members of the public always appreciate the complexity of, of what's involved here. Um, I have just questions about a couple of the, the, work, the work program items. Uh, first, uh, home occupancy allowances. When I hear home occupancy, what comes to mind for me is how many unrelated persons are allowed to live in a home. And I think many of you know that my wife and I have an eight-bedroom house, and we rent several of the rooms. Our homeowners association tried to put a limit of five unrelated persons, and that was based on what the city code says, five unrelated persons. It makes no sense to have a limit of five unrelated persons in an eight-bedroom house, at least when, once the kids are grown. And um, but I don't. When I read the description of this item, that's not what this is about. This is about home occupation, uh, a home occupation code. And so I think we need to differentiate between home occupations and home occupancy limits, and have two separate items. And I would like to see both items <laughs> be on the work program. <clears throat> so there's that. Um, the second thing is the um, uh, missing middle housing and ADU. Um, optimization. <clears throat> and I have a question as to uh, whether one particular thing is going to be included in that study, and that is the form of ownership of the land and the buildings. Um, I've had conversations with people who say one of the things that's holding up the creation of duplexes and triplexes is the fact that because it's a multi-unit uh, building on a, a single lot, it has to be designed as a condominium, and that that very much complicates the financing, both during construction and uh, after construction. Um, but I'm not sure what we can do ab about that at the city level, whether that's something that would require state-level changes. Um, I did some research, and you know, the, Kirkland does have zero lot line zoning, and we have several developments throughout the city where you have basically attached units, but the property line goes through the middle of the wall. And from a financing perspective, they are treated as single family, not as condominiums. And that makes a huge difference in qualification and interest rates and all kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> but in order to make use of that zoning, you have to rezone the property and you have to change the comprehensive plan and it's very complicated. And so the question is, what kind of a solution can we find that would allow people to build duplexes and triplexes with different owners of each unit without it having to be a condominium? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I don't, and I don't know if Adam knows the answer to that, but this is something that I think is a challenge we have to figure out um, because it's really gonna slow down the whole process of building duplexes and triplexes and attached ADUs even with separate ownership if you have to create a condominium association every time you do that. Thank you. Uh, Toby, I could respond really quickly to that. Um, so we actually do allow for fee simple ownership of um, lots within duplex, triplex, cottage projects. And we actually, our code specifies that there's no minimum lot size as well. So 
it's been a little bit of a mystery to us actually why folks aren't pursuing that. I think one of the answers is probably that um, the subdivision process takes a number of months, you know, six months, seven months, eight months. And so I think um, for a lot of developers, it's just more efficient to condoize missing, a missing middle housing project and to not go through the you know, six month process to subdivide. But it is something that is allowed in our code right now. Um, and I suspect we'll see more uptake of that in the future. And we are trying to be really clear in our communications to developers that that, that, that is something that's allowed as well. So. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of misunderstanding about that yeah. right now, um, particularly when you know you read the the zoning tables and it says it they, it does talk about minimum lot sizes, you know R six that's a sixth of an acre plus or minus a little bit right, and so if you wanted to create a triplex there, well you're going to have a lots that are, you know an eighteenth of an acre not a sixth of an acre, and. I, I read through it and I couldn't figure out how that gets accommodated within the various tables. Yeah, that could, that could be part of our um, missing middle housing ADU cleanup as well, just making that more clear. I mean, the way that we tackled missing middle housing here was what we created basically an overlay, right? So we didn't do away with our single family zoning. We created an overlay chapter that's imposed on single family, which I think does lead to some confusion. So we could address that in the, um, the project here. That'd be great. Thank you. Before I go to a second round, anybody who has not spoken out interested, Scott, please. I just wanted uh, to bring up on uh, Toby's, the home occupancy. It was a little bit broader than what, um, and I, I pushed for this to be on the work program. It's because all through COVID, we saw this huge amount of people who brought their businesses from you know, downtown or Bellevue into their homes. And it is a push to make sure that they're legal, that the city is collecting licensing, and also so that it's easy for people who are running a business out of their house that they can do it legally. And we just have to update and tweak our codes a little bit so that we're looking at maybe instead of saying, oh, you're only allowed this number of people a day, saying, okay, you're allowed this number of people at a time because you're not overflowing the neighborhoods. And it is because I'll tell you, I'm a legal business in Kirkland. I operate out of my house. I am well known in my neighborhood. Everybody comes and picks up plants and you know, gets what they need. But I make sure that people are not there at the same time someone else is. Um, and that's what we want to do. We want to collect the funds that these businesses are already in Kirkland operating, but maybe they're not licensed. So we need to update and make sure that we're operating the way we should be at this point in time. And I would, I would just question, because Kelly actually mentioned it to me earlier today, how that work or how that discussion will hook up with the work that Michael Olson is doing around business licenses. I think that's all part of the discussion because I know just in my neighborhood, uh, several of my neighbors operate their businesses and I ask them, are you licensed in Kirkland? They may be licensed with the state, but they're not licensed in Kirkland. And if they are operating Kirkland, we should be collecting the money, but we also shouldn't be going out and trying to find them and find them. So it should be easy. It should be something that people aren't afraid of or something if they're operating a business going, 
well, I'm going to be so limited that I can't operate and somebody can turn me in. So, and it is making it so that we are 10 minute neighborhoods that you can walk someplace, get a good or service because in the last four years, basically, my accountant, my uh, financial planner, my insurance agent, all moved into their homes. So they're all in Kirkland, but they're not all licensed with Kirkland. They're all licensed with the state or they have a PO box someplace. We need to make it friendly, convenient, easy, so they're not afraid. And I looked at the ARCH letter where it said, well, we need to maybe be able to commercialize ADUs. I think the rules should be broad enough that it should encompass all businesses in your home instead of just saying, well, you have to have an ADU to be operating in this manner. So yes, this is a tough decision because you don't want to turn every neighborhood into a retail association. Um, but you also shouldn't be afraid to operate your business out of your home. Okay, great. Uh, Neil. Okay. I can't tell if this mic is on, but I think you guys can hear me. Um, so thank you. So I'll be really interested in that policy discussion as you guys work through it. Um, when, you, when you get to that, I think that'll be uh, really fascinating. I did want to um, lend my uh, voice to those who spoke in support of all the hard work that the Planning Commission does. Um, I really like John's comments about communication. COVID has not been friendly uh, to our ability to connect uh, with the work that, that you guys are doing. And so um, really like the idea of, of uh, I mean, just this joint session, uh, but also uh, the more communications. I do like uh, what Toby said about the complexity of land use and planning issues and how um, little that's appreciated uh, by the public, just how uh, uh, complex and intersectional these issues are. Um, and so really appreciate all the time you guys spend, which leads to um, a suggestion I have. I liked what, um, I appreciate what Amy was saying about the Holmes Point overlay. I don't necessarily wanna add, I guess this is maybe a question for the director and the deputy director but um, this seems like, uh, uh, as far as finding out if there are sort of analyzing whether there's anything within the Holmes Point overlay that we can address now, I'm wondering if we could do this sort of a little bit top down. Uh, so it comes to the council, some of the things that Amy was talking about, uh, some of the analysis um, comes to the, instead of adding to the workload of the Planning Commission, it comes to the council. We can take a look at it and think about whether <laughs> we want to then uh, add it to the to the the workload that the planning commissions already do, but but before we do that, we've got a little bit of more of this information from staff about what the low hanging fruit there is. That's that was just a suggestion I had, and I wanted to get your reaction. Well, yeah, I, I like Amy's idea a lot. I think primarily because it's it can be an educational tool. Like I think what you'll all find is that there's not a huge difference anymore between the Homes Point Overlay and the tree code. The tree code now applies in the Homes Point Overlay. The Homes Point Overlay has a couple of additional requirements like a protected natural area, for instance, um, and 25% of the lot. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, the, the rules are more uniform than they used to be. So I like the idea a lot of having, yeah, preparing some sort of side-by-side -side comparison. I think we can talk about, yeah, bringing it to council in the form of a a memo or something and sharing it with the Planning Commission as well so everybody's on the same page. But I think it'll be good as an educational tool because it sounds like there is some misperception out there about um, the rules being substantially different in the Homes Point overlay versus the tree code. So I, it's, I think it's a, a good thing. We can, we can work on that. Great. Thank you. 
Amy. Yes, thanks, Penny. Thanks for that, Neil. I agree. That was my intent when I, I think, mentioned that bring it to council and or the planning commission, really, whatever your recommendation was there. Um, yeah, hoping to check things off the box, with, you know, check the boxes off, like actually do the work, but check off our to-do list without creating extra work whenever we can, right? And I think that's really good. Um, well, Scott, thank you so much for your points about um, the, I get confused with Toby too with the language here, but of the um, home occupancy allowances, right? Like I've been calling corner stores. I know they're not all corner stores, right? I get that, right? But that's just kind of a term that um, we hear about that. I agree with you. I think making it, I think your words were friendly, convenient, and easy are, would be really good. So part of that conversation I'm hoping will be, you know, how to support those, right? Like you said, not to make it like a punitive thing, but how can we help educate folks um, about getting licensed in the city of Kirkland and, and help them along those process, especially very small businesses that might just be a one-person operation or something really small that they just may not really understand what the process is. So making sure they have that support. And I think in addition, I really, really am hoping to see out of this um, work that you're undertaking, not only the service type businesses that you mentioned, but also retail, entertainment, other things. You know, I think of neighborhoods where I can, I would love to walk a few blocks away and get my groceries at a corner store or walk a block or two the other way and get my nails done or, you know, um, businesses that are often at the ground floor of with residences above, you know, when my last home in Philadelphia was above a chiropractor's office and it was on a corner and it was a pretty awesome corner in Philly, I have to say, but um, like a big bike race would come every year up our street. Anyway, um, but so it creates such a sense of community to have those places to go, those gathering spaces, whether it be services, whether it be retail, whether it be entertainment, like there's so many different options. And I think we really need, need to be thoughtful to your point. Like, I don't know that this city is at a place where the community wants to see every single home have a ground level, you know, storefront type business. Um, but I think it could really be a, a cool thing for everybody. And it's an equity issue as well, because like you mentioned, there's so many folks who want to open or have opened a small business and can't afford the leasing a traditional storefront, right? And so having the ability to be able to do that, and there's probably so many things that I'm not even thinking of that would be involved in that. So I'm really hoping that we not only allow it, but that we encourage it as well. So thank you. Thank you, John T. Thank you. Um, I, I hope we improve the communication between the City Council and the Planning Commission. And I think the communication between the City Council and the Planning Commission was much better before COVID and much worse after. Um, I don't necessarily get frustrated at all when the City Council deviates from a Planning Commission recommendation, because that's fine, that's your prerogative. But when it's poorly transmitted, and I don't feel like the City Council understands our recommendation, that's where it's frustrating to me. I hope we think about potentially assigning a member of the City Council to the Planning Commission that maybe pops in on a regular basis. Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold has done that. Um, but if there's any ideas that you as council members have to increase communication, um, I'd love to have that happen. Um, because COVID, I think, has made that situation worse. And I think there's been times where the Planning Commission has been frustrated because we spent an enormous amount of time deliberating over a recommendation only to have that recommendation not transmitted in the most effective manner. Thank you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a moment to comment just because I, I agree with you. I mean, I think communications have broken down somewhat. I also think 
that the intensity of the work has also led to to the breakdown of communication. Coming out of COVID, uh, some of the hardest work, blood, sweat, and tears you guys have put into this, and I, I, I think we all recognize that. We're also kind of tired too. <laughs> it, it's been a tough last, God, four years, three and a half. Um, so yeah, I get it. I think we can do a better job. Um, I don't know if I could handle going to planning commission meetings too. <laughs> no, we don't have to. I mean, when when Deputy Mayor Arnold popped in, he just popped in for the first 10, 15 minutes, gotcha. said hi, and okay. it was it was uh, it, it was good to see him there. Well, and you know, when you want to hear from either any of us, we're we're available. Our okay. telephones ring on our and, it, and it's cell phones. My fault is my fault as well. My fault. My Angela. Yeah. So I I did want to continue on that vein that it's not about having a council member at all of our meetings like you guys have enough hours in this room as it is but the nice thing about hybrid meetings too is that maybe once a quarter a council member comes in for the first 10 minutes just to update folks I know we have our quarterly meetings with you and Jay um, just you know two on two sort of mm -hmm. thing but I think there is value in having a council member come to planning commission, even if it's once a quarter for 10 minutes, just to say, hey, here's the update. Does anybody have any questions? Like, I, I do understand that phones are great. I talk to plenty of you on a regular basis, but um, I think it is sometimes nice to just be there. Um, and having this meeting, too, I don't think we've had one in four years, four. three or four years. Um, so. I think that's a big piece too, is that like, even just, you know, me popping in to the beginning of your council meeting to give an update, or you or Jay popping in for a couple minutes to give an update to us, is there's no substitute for this meeting. Um, and so, you know, even if it's short or, you know, small work, you know, smaller group sort of thing, but um, having more connection than just an update, it's, you know, once a, every once in a while. Well, particularly as we work through the tough issues that we're going to work through this year. I mean, it's not going to just be housing and the interpretation of all the housing legislation. Uh, the permanent supportive housing facility will begin being upgraded and, and we'll be getting ready for people to move in there. Um, what else are we doing that's hard? Good news is, is we've already done ADU and missing middle housing compared to a lot of other cities that are going to have to start from scratch. So absolutely, I feel like that's something and we bravo haven't. Bravo to all of yeah, them. Yeah, I feel like that's something we haven't acknowledged tonight. Is like you know this list is you know miles long, but if we were having to implement a missing middle housing code and an ADU code from like the ground up, um, that would just basically wipe everything else off of our. Yeah, I think year. that goes a lot to our housing strategy work group. Sandeep. Thank you, Madam Chair, Ma Madam Mayor. I, I wonder in the in the spirit of communication whether one strategy rather than the the kind of general meeting is to think about whether there are four particularly contentious recommendations, whether we propose a 15-minute even study session where we can jointly just discuss 
the topics and the issues that were raised during the commission's meeting and have a more kind of open conversation like the one tonight about the pros and cons that we were facing. Um, I, I, I worry that the memos or even a very short two minute conversation in the council meeting really doesn't give the time to present a full texture of the issues that we're often confronting in some of these more complex recommendations. Thank you. Thank you, and I think that's a, I think that's a good idea. It would probably land in Allison's lap to sort of recognize when it would be most appropriate for us or a group of us to come together, even at, at a meeting or before a meeting or however we would need to do it. I think I think and I think we usually know what those topics are. Usually it's whenever you have a split decision, that's a pretty good sign. Yeah. Sandy or Neil. Okay. Um I I think this is a great conversation. I really like talking about um us really focusing on the process and how um we can make because this really should all be about um making the best decisions we possibly can on on plant land use planning issues. Um and I think the most important thing for me, um, I, I mean, the staff does a great job of communicating to us uh, in the memos, and our council is really diligent at reading all the materials that's provided by staff. So we get a good, we get we get the information, but then we we deliberate in public. And that's what we, we the commissioners know this, colleagues, my colleagues on the council know this. We deliberate in public. Um, and that's really, for me, that's when um, it would be most helpful um, if I guess uh, w what we're talking about possibly is staff sort of helping us recognize when there's going to be an issue that we're going to deliberate on at a meeting in public where it would be really helpful to have a representative, and I guess this goes to uh, what John was saying earlier, having a representative of the, of the uh, commission at our meeting while we're deliberating so that we can ask the questions. Um, you know, so you made, a, you made this recommendation the direction of this discussion at council meeting is going kind of this direction, which is a little bit different than the recommendation, and having you avail, having a, a member of the planning commission at that uh, discussion available to sort of characterize, um, you know, what the what the complex issues were that were discussed at the planning commission level, uh, what you heard from the public, uh, why the decision was made the way it was, and that way we can take that into account in our deliberations, and that might be the thing that's sort of the most that might be the gap um, is our ability to sort of have a little bit more of a back and forth at the moment when we're deliberating. And again, that's going to be happening at the council meeting. It doesn't happen anywhere else. So thanks. Thank you. Um, along the exact same thing we're talking about, council has the um, knowledge of what's going on with all kinds of commissions. And so when we're looking at something, we're looking at it from the planning point of view, but we don't know necessarily what that means, utilities or with transportation. And we get tidbits of that, like with the station area plan. Um, but it's often, I think, some of it's those all those other elements um, that might get in the way of us understanding why and how decisions are made. Um, particularly maybe when, you know, it's not following a recommendation. But just to underscore, I do appreciate the idea of, and I think it'd be helpful really to have different commissioners attend um, when we're making, when we're uh, proposing a recommendation um, for our benefit, certainly as 
you know, put ten, well, we are already, as city leaders, <laughs> for us to, you know, learn uh, more broadly um, what you guys are up to, because we can take all that learning back as well. And when we have our next project, um, there's a number of us who will have learned things here and there that um, can only make our process better. Thank you. Thank you. Kelly? I just, I do want to give Angela credit that she has been coming to our council meetings and um, talking about planning commission recommendations and has made herself available uh, to do that. And personally, I've found it very valuable. So I just want to recognize that we, that, that step is moving forward. Excellent. Angela? Well, and I think that comes back to Sandeep's suggestion of there's a very different experience of giving a two-minute snippet at the beginning of a meeting and then more or less sitting on call if you need me versus a 15-minute study session where we're really interacting on like a more group level. Mm -hmm. And I think that piece might be really, you know, when it's, we're updating you on our recommendation on autonomous vehicles um, or the delivery stuff. Um, it's very different than, you know, reporting back about station area um, or if we were doing tree code, for example. Um, so I think the like small information for most meetings is fine, but then those bigger recommendations like Sandeep recognized, you know, even a 15 minute study session where, you know, planning commission maybe only comes virtually, comes for 15 or 20 minutes at the beginning and then leaves. But having both bodies have that connection, I think is very different than just a single person there that just gives a little bit of information, gets a couple of questions, but you're still getting a different flavor than when it's a joint meeting. Good for thought. Uh, Toby. Well, and I would also say that just because the council is the council, we don't have to have that be on a council meeting night. Mm -hmm. Because I've been sitting here thinking, well, why don't we just have the council members join the planning commission meeting Zoom during the regular planning commission meeting? Um, it's only going to be for 15 or 30 minutes or something like that. Because uh, we can declare it to be a special council meeting and just do it if that's what turns out to be more convenient. Yeah, I think we should evaluate these. <clears throat> Go ahead, Scott. I would just say what would be helpful to you when you're having really When we have those really tough decisions, um, and we don't know where city council is exactly at, and we also don't know you've been working on it even longer than we have, and those are the times that just getting an inkling would really help us because we think we're the ones working on it, but you know, council has already worked a lot of hard hours and, and done uh, you know, a huge job, and we're meeting with the public. It just would be very helpful so that you know, we get that guidance too, um, because sometimes uh, <laughs> we're working, and it seems like we're on this parallel path, and know if we just if some of it's shared so that we know and we're not recommending something that just isn't in the parameter thank you we measure um, so I would just say I really like all these ideas but I think to your point about evaluating them because one of the challenges is 
who gets the memo when and when does anyone have time to prepare to react to the memo, right? So if you're the way we do it now, the Planning Commission might get a lot more information a lot sooner than the council does. And council coming in cold to that meeting may not have the same effect of, of having you had a chance to read the memo. So I think what staff needs to do is figure out, like, what's the right time to have the 15-minute conversation so that it's actually helpful to both sides. But I, I like all the suggestions. I think we can brainstorm with staff how to best implement them. But I do think we need to think about the best way to do this because there is some complexities to that as well. Yeah, I think this has been a really rich conversation. Unfortunately, we do have two executive sessions to move into. So um, I just want to tell you all, we are so grateful for the work that you put in, for the really hard work that you put in, the public hearings, um, and, and what you, you need to know is this conversation may result in our not having to go back and watch planning commission's <laughs> meetings, <laughs> which is what we generally do. So with that, we will adjourn uh, until our regular meeting begins at 7.30 for a study session or for a, uh, an executive session for two issues, the potential acquisition of real going to start about five minutes late so we're we're getting just a little late start We're live, Mayor. We're live. Thank you. We are back in session following a joint. We are back in session following a joint study session with the Planning Commission and an executive session to discuss the potential acquisition of real property and potential litigation. Uh, we are at the place in our agenda where we do honors and proclamations. Uh, we are starting with an Earth Month proclamation, and City Manager, you, you want to introduce uh, it? And thank you, Madam Mayor. Deputy yes, Mayor, gonna, I'll come up. You're proclaiming April 2023 as Earth Month in Kirkland, and 
I just want to point out to the uh, members of the audience, anyone else, that the memo has a lot of details of actions the city has taken over the last uh, decade or so, as well as links to our sustainability master plan on our website, which enumerates all the other actions we will be taking over the next few years. And here to receive the proclamation, who will be joining you is <coughs> David Barnes, our senior planner, who's also the architect of the sustainability master plan. So David, why don't you join them up there? Welcome, David. A proclamation of the city of Kirkland proclaiming April as Earth Month in Kirkland, Washington. Whereas the city of Kirkland has a long-standing dedication to protecting and enhancing the natural environment in Kirkland, and whereas an adopted Kirk city of Kirkland city council goal is to protect our natural environment through sustainable goals and practices and to equitably meet the needs of all community members for a healthy environment and easy access to clean energy without compromising the needs of future generations. And whereas Earth Month is a reminder that individuals and communities can make a difference to reduce energy use, electrify homes and businesses, produce renewable solar energy, reduce consumption and waste, and help equitably mitigate the known impacts of climate change. And whereas the Kirkland City Council is committed in our 2023-2024 work plan to prioritize the funding of sustainability master plan actions to further equity, energy efficiency, public health, and a clean energy economy that promotes a sustainable and resilient environment. And whereas Kirkland residents continually show commitment to the environment by reducing energy use, reducing waste, recycling, composting, preventing water pollution, advocating for the environment, utilizing alternative transportation, and volunteering to restore natural areas. And whereas numerous city programs across departments work to protect the environment, ranging from the Urban Forest Strategic Management Plan, special recycling events and waste reduction efforts, protection of the city's streams, wetlands, and lakes, and the Green Kirkland Partnerships natural parkland restoration events, and more. And whereas the city is active in regional environmental efforts, like the Lake Washington Cedar Sammamish Watershed Salmon Recovery Council, the King County Cities Climate Collaboration, K4C, and the Energy Smart Eastside Heat Pump Program to reduce carbon emissions and environmental impacts and improve sustainable behavior, and whereas Kirkland will continue to lead the way toward reducing carbon emissions and other pollution while making the city more resilient in the face of climate change to protect the environment for all future generations. Now, therefore, Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim April 2023 as Earth Month in Kirkland, Washington, and calls upon all community members to take action to reduce their impact on the environment and achieve an equitable, sustainable, and resilient community. Thank you. It's so gratifying to see all the great work that the city is doing on the environment, because there's so much to do. Um, it's equally important that uh, the city is leading with equity in our policies, our programs, and our um, actions. Um, I'd like to thank um, the community, staff, and council for all of the great work making Kirkland a more sustainable place for those that are there here today and for our future generations. So thank you, 
and happy Earth Month and happy Earth Day on Saturday. Thank you, Dave. Okay, this takes us to communications, item number six. This is the time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none this evening. Please limit your remarks to three minutes, and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in the order in which they have signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. Uh. We ask that you please not. Architect of the SMP, I'll update. Oh. <laughs> the architect of the Adam. SMP. <laughs> Adam, you, you're unmuted. Okay. We ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disappointment with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of their content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are also not allowed in council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their comment. City Clerk, will you please announce our speakers. Our first two speakers are Karen Story and Yasmin Karimli, followed by Santos Contreras. Welcome, Karen. Good evening. My name is Karen Story. I'm here tonight as a member of Quiet Clean Kirkland, a volunteer group striving to reduce air and noise pollution and improve public health by phasing out obsolete, highly polluting gas-powered leaf blowers. We are part of a growing nationwide Quiet Clean movement. We urge you to approve the electric leaf blower resolution tonight. I'd like to address a few of the concerns expressed by council members and stakeholders. We can provide sources for these. Electric equipment is not heavier than gas-powered equipment. Lithium-ion batteries are dense and heavy, but not as heavy as a combustion engine and gas tank. There is currently powerful commercial-grade equipment, electric equipment, on the market, with more coming quickly. The California sales ban is a compelling market force. The use of electric equipment should not increase costs to businesses and customers. Commercial grade electric blowers are capable of handling commercial cleanup and more than capable of handling residential needs. Plus, there will be time savings due to eliminating carburetor and spark plug maintenance. To ethically dispose of gas-powered equipment, we suggest a buyback program that will both get the equipment out of circulation and enable bulk recycling opportunities. As for battery cost and charging, 
Even with purchasing enough batteries to last a full day's work, one California study showed a positive return on investment in battery-powered leaf blowers in only 10 months. Batteries can also be charged from the vehicle alternator while driving between jobs. Leaf blowers are not generally used in cold enough conditions in this area to cause a problem with battery reliability. Leaves are gone by the time freezing weather arrives. While we believe it's important to have a monetary penalty on the books that could be used in cases of repeat non-compliant businesses or individuals, we believe that education and client pressure will greatly reduce the need for enforcement. Please be courageous and bold for our city, our planet, and our grandchildren's future and support the Electric Leaf Blower Initiative. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Yasmin Karimli, followed by Santos Contreras and Cherise Burgoyne. Good evening and happy Earth Month. My name is Yasmin Karimli and I'm also with Quite Clean Kirkland in support of the Electric Leaf Blower Initiative. I would like to address a few of the concerns expressed by council members at the last meeting. Council member Falcone mentioned the importance of staggered procurement. We agree and hope that once companies know this is coming, they won't wait to choose electric equipment as soon as they need to be replaced existing equipment. You also noted that the technology is still evolving but we don't think this should slow the adoption timeline because the technology will always be evolving. Deputy Mayor Arnold um, asked whether Kirkland should go first or wait to coordinate with other jurisdictions. We hope that Kirkland will coordinate but won't delay if, they, if their timeline is longer. Thank you also for asking staff to add more about the noise impacts of gas-powered blowers to the resolution. Noise is a serious public health issue. Thank you, Councilmember Nixon, for mentioning Kirkland's noise ordinance. Blowers and other maintenance equipment are exempt from Kirkland's noise ordinance via the referenced Washington State Code. We would like to see this exemption removed. You also questioned how electric blowers can be quieter. As the cylinders of a gas-powered engine oscillate and the fuel goes through combustion, the engine vibration makes a lot of noise. Since sound volume doubles with every six decibels, even a slight reduction in decibels makes a huge difference. Also, the low-frequency sound of gas blowers travels farther and penetrates walls and buildings more effectively than the higher pitch sound of electric blowers. We agree that noise is an infringement on neighbors' rights, and we also believe that toxic emissions are an infringement. Please approve the resolution, and thank you for your time. Thank you. The next speaker is Santos Contreras, followed by Sharice Burgoyne and Ryan James. Welcome, Mr. Good evening, Contreras. Council. Thanks for giving me the chance to speak. Hello to all of you. City Manager, I'm here to talk about Park Lane parking and the continuation thereof. I've uh, been 
Oh, Santos Contreras. I've been a resident of Kirkland for 48 years, and I'm here to ask you not to ban parking at Park Lane. I've not heard any compelling reason why the city would want to do this. Parking, or lack thereof, has been a problem for all the years I have lived here. Back in the day when I first met Larry Springer, he was working for Kirkland downtown, and he was bemoaning the lack of parking. This was in the early 90s. So the situation is even worse. To even think about making it worse on purpose is incomprehensible to me. Why would we want to reduce parking when 100% of the affected businesses have voiced their opposition to losing parking on Park Lane? Their interests must be given a great deal of weight since their shops rely heavily on the street parking that currently exists. I understand the closing of a street in Bothell is a model for doing this in Kirkman. I've gone to that area in Bothell and it looks like a dead zone. Certainly not a viable business location. Please allow the parking to continue on Park Lane. Thanks for listening. Thank you. The next speaker is Cherise Burgoyne. And please use the microphone. Okay, thank you. Welcome. Hi everyone, I'm Cherise Burgoyne. Thank you, Madam Mayor and Council. City Manager, I am here today on behalf of the Kirkland Chamber of Commerce to speak on the Park Lane issue that has been presented by uh, many people in front of you. Uh, we at the Chamber would like to encourage to keep the street open um, during business hours and then allow for street closure for pedestrian movement during the summer months. So. That's, that's kind of what the chamber came up with, and we, we would like to encourage that you let the businesses do business during business hours, and then during the summer months, allow for pedestrian movement. Thank you. Thank you. The next speaker is Ryan James, followed by Alex Zimmerman. I just want to uh, thank you, council members. Uh, thank you, Mayor Sweet and City Manager Triplett. I wanted to address uh, Park Lane as well and keeping Park Lane open, keeping Park Lane open for businesses and keeping Park Lane open for parking. My question that I want you to ask yourself when you're considering this is what is the goal of the closure and how does it affect our small business community? And I want you to ask if the city has proven this model within its own jurisdiction. In 2018, I did an arts festival on Park Lane. We had over 100 participating artists in 10 by 10 booths. Since then, there hasn't been another festival utilizing Park Lane. And I also want you to ask how the maintenance and the upkeep of Park Lane has been going and consider the ADA accessibility. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you. The next speaker is Alex Zimmerman. <clears throat> Zee Kyle. Dory Krug, Dem Nazi pig from Animal Farm. My name is Alex Zimmerman, and I'm candidate for ship to the moon 23. Yeah, I want to speak about something that is absolutely critical right now. It times time right now, 
Yep, time come. Yeah, absolutely. Bellevue, where right now, first city in America, what is white people a minority. Situation very unique and absolutely dangerous and totally critical for white people. All white people inside West, Eastern side too. You know what is mean for, yeah, for city what is we have here. So people who come right now to Bellevue and around, you know what is mean? Most of this come from Shanghai and Calcutta, you know what is mean, and from another country. They born like a slave, they will be acting like a slave. Is this exactly bring America in situation right now, what is we have local, to totally bad condition? Europe, classic example right now. White people in Europe right now, totally gone, dead. Guys, it's not about racism, it's about culture. People who come right now, who are controlled by Amazon, Microsoft, and another tech, you know what it means? They come from country what is half slavery for a thousand years. It's a culture. They born like a slave, will be acting like a slave. It's simple, you know what it means? You can ask this every teacher in school, yes, what is you want? My opinion, it's not only my opinion. So right now, I speak to everybody, we need something doing about this. Why? Because to me, this looks like a pure Holocaust. You know what it means? In my family, three generations of my family know what it means, Holocaust. It never will be better. It will be worse. When we not stand up for us, right, constitutional right, we will become the same condition what is Europe now. It's America, you know what it means? It's USA, United States of America. We have constitution. What is very unique, no analogy constitution in new human history, you know what this means? And I come to America for one particular reason, because I believe in America and I believe in constitution. These people who will become destroy America totally, it's happened now. It's happened everywhere. It's Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond, or Mersley Island. You cannot change this. You're so quiet. You need to stand up and something doing about this. Because we don't can come to position what is white people will be right now pardoning garbage. It's exactly what has happened. It's nothing to do with race. I want what is you don't understand. I'm not racist. We're talking about culture. Culture is a fundamental principle for every government in this planet. Different culture, different action. That's it. No another choice. So I speak right now to everybody. Mr. Zimmerman, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have one final speaker, Chad Walter. Welcome. Hi, I'm Jesse Walter, and this is, oh, he did come up, my husband, Chad Walter. We own Bottle and Bowl and Feast in downtown Kirkland. We opened Bottle and Bowl in 2014, and we've been on Park Lane since um, 2017. We love the Kirkland community and the downtown corridor and have been very happy to run two of our businesses here. We do want to express some concerns and object, objective, objections we have with a permanent closure of Park Lane. Of the 20 businesses that have been surveyed on Park Lane, not one is in support of a full-time closure and we think that's important. As businesses, we have invested a lot in the downtown corridor and that directly draws a lot of people into Moss Bay. Since we spend five to seven days a week in downtown, we do consider ourselves well-versed in what will or will not enrich um, the experience in this area. Many comparisons that have been made to a permanent closure have been areas where the climate is warm and sunny year-round. 
Um, unfortunately, that's not our weather experience here. Therefore, we feel that Park Lane would be underutilized for eight plus months out of the year if there was a permanent closure. I think most, if not all people, would agree um, the number one constraint in downtown Kirkland is our parking. Taking away even a few stalls um, would negatively impact all of downtown, um, not just Park Lane. A main thorough, uh, removing a main thoroughfare will further add to the congestion um, on Lake Street and be a deterrent to those already concerned about coming downtown um, for parking and backups. We have to consider um, the accessibility for anyone with physical limitations. We personally see them utilize the parking on Park Lane um, daily and strongly feel they would no longer be able to frequent and enjoy the businesses that Park Lane has to offer if there was a permanent closure. Access to deliveries and garbage and recycling, among other things, will be negatively impacted and further add to any congestion. Um, based on previous closures, we do not believe this will increase outsiders coming into Kirkland or Kirklandites coming into downtown more often. Furthermore, from some previous um, points that we have made, we actually think that this would be a deterrent. From a personal standpoint, logistically and operationally, it was only harder for us to run our businesses during um, closures. Uh, businesses sign leases and invest a lot of money to improve the aesthetic of downtown Kirkland. And we did so based off of, sorry, um, how Park Lane operates today currently. Um, many already find Park Lane to be the most attractive street within Kirkland, at least downtown Kirkland. So the question becomes, um, what problem are we trying to solve? If there is no problem, those funds could be better spent on something with a much better, with a much bigger need. As a business owner, we're Thank always... Thank you. I'm sorry. Your time is up. All right. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That was our last signed up speaker. Okay. Is there anyone else who would wish to address the council at this time? Seeing none, I will declare this items from the audience period closed. Before we have the uh, a motion on the consent calendar, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold to present an so audience. Mayor, wait. Oops, what I have a special presentation <gasps> first. I, I would just look right at you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so our special presentation is the sound transit update. And I, I wanted her to stay longer. <laughs> Diana? So I'll just uh, introduce as Diana's pulling up the presentation. So we are very delighted today to have Julie Tim, the Sound Transit Chief Executive Officer, visit us. As you know, she has a three-county region to serve, but she's here with us in the city of Kirkland. We're very happy to have her. She joined Sound Transit in September of 2022, and she's going to give us an update of things that impact Kirkland. So welcome, Julie. We're very happy to have you. Uh, thank you, City Manager. Thank you, members of council, for having me here today. It really is a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk to you about what Sound Transit is doing now and what we're looking to do in the future. I believe I'm allowed to just hit the next button, right? I, I, I'm scroll the scroll down. There, see, there we go. Thank you so much for that. I find that uh, with each passing year, I'm becoming more and more of my parents and pressing a button multiple times until it actually works is usually the way I get things done when it comes to computers. So uh, thank you again for the, the welcome here. I did come from the Richmond, Virginia area prior to this, where I was the CEO of the Greater Richmond Transit Company, um, primarily operating bus and BRT. I also did work in Nashville, where we had a multi-billion dollar referendum to look for light rail there. And I also worked in Hampton Roads Transit, where we did expand 
light rail in the downtown area of that region, and we had ferries and BRT, and we had commuter buses. So pretty diverse background in transit, and really so, so pleased to come to this region and advance what is widely known across the nation as the largest expansion of public transit high-capacity service in the nation. We literally have almost all eyes in the country on this region looking at how we are expanding transit to serve our community to connect more people, more places, equitably and sustainably. It's a mission that brought me here, and I am so proud to show you some of the advances we're making to deliver on those promises. This, pr this presentation is going to focus specifically on those uh, items, the capital projects that are ongoing right now for this specific part of our region, but our region is pretty large. And we do more than just capital. So this presentation does not include conversations around how we are currently operating our current system, some of the issues that we're facing the current system that we are working to address right now. Well, I am prepared to answer those if you have questions about them, because I do believe it is incredibly important that as we are looking at this massive expansion of transit throughout the region, that this is the time to make sure that we're operating it right that we have the system right, that we address the security, the safety, the fares, the cleanliness, the vertical conveyances, all the things that you see in the media, the passenger satisfaction, to make sure that we get those right now as we continue to expand through the region. So like I said, we're going to focus today on the system expansion. Our system right now is approximately 26 miles of light rail under construction that will open in the next three to four years will go up to 62 miles. And then after that, when we get really get into ST3 construction, we'll be looking at 116 miles of light rail, 91 miles of sounder, the commuter rail, and 46 miles of BRT. I understand that there's a lot of passion for BRT here, so we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Those are the services that are, uh, besides the sounders, more of the west side, the BRT and the light rail and the ST Express are the ones that you're going to see from us here now and in the future. Our region has approximately, the region of Sound Transit has about 3 million people that we serve. As we move forward in the next 15 years, projections are another $800,000, which is a 25% increase in our population. Uh, I don't drive a lot. I do drive some. Mostly I use transit, and I'll tell you that our roads need some very critical support and how we look at the multimodal connectivity. So it's not just about light rail construction. It's about how we support that interconnectivity to the bike network, to the pedestrian network, the overpasses and how people can cross over to connect, how we do our TOD so we can have that sustainability around our transit so we're not spending transit necessarily, that those dollars reaching out into rural areas that maybe need a different level of transportation support, more on-demand uh, Uber, Lyft type of uh, transportation networks. So when we talk about Sound Transit and the focus being on light rail and BRT, I want to say that our focus at Sound Transit is how do we connect across modes to make sure that our focus isn't just a single mode but all modes. And that is a pivot that I believe that you'll see across the country. I bring it up now because our operating partners are a critical part of the success of our current operations, and they will continue to be a critical part of our success as we stand up BRT and light rail. And our partnerships with the cities and the counties is going to be critical to our success as we advance the ex expansion projects and as we start a new culture of transparency and accountability in how we communicate how we're going to deliver on these faced with 
an incredible shift in this growth to be able to see the billions of dollars of investment that we will be putting in the ground and the workers required to do that, the billions of dollars of investment WashDOT will put in the ground at the same time, a high level investment, I don't have the dollar figure, that the ports will put in the ground along with the transit-oriented development, the commercial growth, and the other growth in this region. That means in the next few years we're going to have a perfect storm of need of higher supply chain and labor to make these investments really deliver for our public. I just got on a soapbox there. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, I CEO prerogative. Uh, really focusing on, I think what I've heard is incredibly important to this community is the BRT. The BRT schedule is moving forward in a, a, a staggered fashion where we have the S1 line, S2 line, S3 line. Each of these are progressing concurrently and there are certain critical path items that need to be met before we can open up the system in its entirety from end to end. We must have our OMF operations and maintenance facility, our bus facility, built and in place that we can accept the vehicles and we can operate out of it. We must have, of course, the dedicated lanes put into place on these areas so that when those vehicles are here, they can run efficiently and have the time savings that our public expects and requires of this type of service. Knowing that those are the, the critical elements, we can look for opportunities to be able to open up without the full opening of every station and every alignment. How can we do um, that integrated network with our partners, King County Metro and others, so that when we do see, and I'm going to use the, the dreaded word here, when we see delays, when we do see those, that we have a path forward to open up incrementally and provide that service while we're looking through the obstacles of workforce shortages and supply chain issues and the, 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 the ongoing growth of this region. We have paths forward to get success incrementally, so we're not waiting until later in 2027 to open the entire system all at once. We are also very excited that this is planned to be an entirely electric service. We're looking at electric articulated buses. Those are easy to obtain, and we are looking at our, uh, the electric double-decker buses. It's a commitment we are, we are very much aligned with and we feel strongly. I will signal that there is risk in this. The manufacturer of the double-decker electric buses is ramping back up. So we do expect that that will be available to us. If it's not, we will come back with an update about how we can continue to support this all-electric fleet. I know it's a core value of this region as we set the example and the standard for the nation. That will continue to be a high priority for us. I also understand that there is a lot of interest in the Northeast, Northeast 85th inline station. Sorry, I had to say that slowly. That contract was just awarded. It's being constructed through WashDOT, and it was awarded just a couple of months ago. We expect a groundbreaking later this fall that's moving forward. I had a briefing about this very recently. I was pretty excited to hear about the, the connectivity to the East Trail. Is that, did I get the name right? The, the bike trail that's, that so many people are very much looking forward to connecting to. Again, these systems aren't just about one mode, they're about the interconnectivity of all modes. So as people use the system, they can go to a park and ride, they can use their bike, they can walk in the overpasses, they connect, connect through other bus systems. It truly is a system that connects people through all these services. Uh, and I, I just love the design of this. <laughs> it's, it's just a, a, an amazing uh, uh, engineering uh, 
design that allows us to connect those multiple modes in the middle of um, the interstate of the freeway, which, by the way, is very, very challenging for a lot of these projects to be able to have that level of pedestrian and bike connectivity in the middle of a, um, a major arterial is a significant achievement, and I'm looking forward to seeing this groundbreaking and the construction move forward. Eastlink. I will start going faster. I know that you have a long agenda, and I can talk forever, so I'm going to speed up here, and uh, so we have some time for questions. The Eastlink starter, there are... Uh, you may be aware that we are looking for, and I believe you have signaled uh, general support, maybe specific support, for an east side starter line. We are still moving forward with the anticipation that if we can achieve uh, success on some of the barriers and obstacles we're facing, that we'll look for the board to approve a starter line uh, to go into revenue service in the spring of 2024. It is not a done deal. It is not a foregone conclusion that this will happen. We still have significant risks to get there. We are managing them actively every single day. Some of those risks are due to workforce, not just the operators of the line, but the maintenance of the line, and to be able to hire to have them available to us so that we can open safely and with the quality that's expected of a light rail service. We also have some technology called a, a passenger information management system, PIMS, that is instrumental not just in providing information to our passengers, but also and how our um, supervisors and dispatch connect to and talk to the trains. That is currently in testing. There are some, uh, some uh, hurdles to get through, but I have a very optimistic report from our staff that we are addressing those and it's moving forward. I say that to say that we are starting with yes. We are starting with how do we get there? And by starting with yes, that helps us to be very transparent about our obstacles, how we're overcoming them, and how we're going to achieve success, knowing that there is the risk that we might not get there. My commitment is to a high level of transparency. That means hard conversations and hard truths. But I believe it means that we can work together to make these things happen. On the I-90 part of the corridor, uh, this is, I think, a better slide. All those red lines that you see um, along the I-90 portion of the corridor is where we've had those issues you may have read about with the plinths. The plants of the concrete structure that hold the rail ties that we are having to have demolished and reconstructed at the cost of the contractor. We are moving forward with those. We have a significant number of them demolished, and we have just uh, approved the reconstruction methodologies and techniques so that they can start advancing towards the completion of the reconstruction over the course of this calendar year. We are watching it very, very closely with a high level of oversight to make sure that the quality that we expect is delivered this time. And our partner has been incredibly cooperative with us and um, has committed to a successful completion of this process in this fiscal year for, or this calendar year, I should say, for the plinths. And then once we have the plinths completed, we'll start with the, the remaining work to do the overhead catenary system, contact system, electrical uh, system, the site testing to target a spring, summer 2025 opening across the water. With downtown Redmond, I think this is the last project update, uh, that is on status. We have actual project float on this project, which is always good to have because when we know that we have weather events that can eat into project float very, very fast. But not only do we have uh, positive float in the schedule, my team says that they are gaining momentum on that. So we are definitely on track, no pun intended, to open in the spring of 2025 timeframe. And that's uh, pretty exciting for us. Uh, there's a lot of TOD and connectivity in that region. The team uh, showed me some of the 
innovation they're putting around vibration control and the connectivity of the bike pet infrastructure, the TOD that's coming around it. It is a very exciting project, and I look forward to some ribbon cuttings there soon with the Redmond Technology Station possibly opening for Microsoft and the community here in the next few months or so. And with that, I have talked for a very long time, and I want to thank you for indulging me in uh, going on a couple of soapboxes, and um, thank you for your time, and I'm available to answer questions. Well, thank you so much for a very comprehensive report. Uh, you came with a great resume, and uh, it would appear that you're going to be able to get the job done for thank us. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. With that, I will go to Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Julie, for coming tonight. It's great to see you in person. Uh, we really appreciate the partnership with Sound Transit, working together in the design of 85th, as you mentioned. It's, it's, it's going to be uh, innovative, and we've also done a lot of work on connections there. You've also mentioned looking forward to the groundbreaking, which is exciting. It sounds like it may happen later this year. That's fantastic. I also wanted to note from the first planning meetings of this project, I served on the Sound Transit 405 Executive Advisory Group, and I'd asked about battery buses to some skepticism. And while the optimism that, wow, this might be possible has grown over time, this is the first update that we've heard where you're saying, yes, we're planning for battery electric buses on the entire line. I just want to congratulate you on, on that. Uh, Thank you. We really do appreciate that. Uh, Sound Transit has been able to be nimble and recognize the rapid development of the technology. It is a, a challenging technology. I have not been a fan of electric buses in the past. We had them in Nashville and earlier generations. It, the technology has made a significant amount of progress, and we are looking to incorporate into the design end-of-line end inductive charging to be able to maintain the, um, the charging of those buses. So the team has been very creative and innovative, and I'm pretty excited to be fully supportive of this direction. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, thanks again for being here and, and giving an update on all those significant projects you have going on and, and just being really transparent in how you're addressing some of the challenges um, that you face as an agency. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think about is that, you know, a transit trip is more than just like a bus or train trip, right? It's really about how you connect to the transit system as well. You know, so you start out walking to a bus stop, then you get on a bus and you ride the bus and then you maybe transfer to a train or to another bus and then, you know, it goes on from there. But that, that rider experience is such, is very important thinking about that um, as a system, right? And one of the major changes that we supported in Kirkland was the truncation of the Route 255, which is a metro route, but it, we, it was truncated to the UW light rail station. Um, and we got a lot of um, comments from the community about, hey, this is going to decrease or worsen my rider experience because I'm going to have to transfer. And, and we worked with Sound Transit and Metro and SDOT to kind of make sure that that, that, did, that didn't happen. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, some of the, the fears have come true, and it kind of relates to the, as you said, the vertical conveyance uh, situation or escalators to the term I use, I guess. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I was explaining that I was going to bring the subject up to the city manager this, this morning, and he was like, oh, I had firsthand experience with this, uh, this, this past weekend when he had, when he's coming back from the airport and had to lug his, his bags up the stairs because the escalators weren't working. Yeah. 
and the line was incredibly long to, to use the, the um, elevator. So it just kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a question that's I know that you probably get often, and I hear from the public a lot, but you know, what is the plan uh, to make sure that this one doesn't happen at you know, new stations that come, come, come online? That, um, that how are you gonna fix and keep those escalators working you know, on an ongoing basis? And kind of what are the agency's goals? Like is it a 99% rate of all, they're always working? You know, how quickly are they fixed? Is it within 48 hours? Do you have goals and measures and performance measures that you, you try to achieve from all of that? Absolutely. Um, so you're gonna have to cut me off because I can talk about this one all day. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if you were on, was it, did you come back on Sunday afternoon? Roosevelt Station. <clears throat> Sunday afternoon we were having some issues on the line that were outside of our control, which of course is what you have when you have an operational system. There are some times when to preserve safety and quality, you need to pivot how you operate, and that did happen to us this weekend. Regarding the vertical conveyances, good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is, is that the current system is composed of approximately 200 vertical conveyances, escalators, and elevators through the current operational system. I believe the number, I don't have, I, someone's going to quote me on this, and, and my team is going to come back later. That's the wrong number. I believe that when we're fully built out, we're looking at over 500 vertical conveyances. doesn't give you great confidence that if we can't keep them operating now, how are we going to keep 500 operating? So that's the, the, the oof. The majority, not all, the majority of the assets, and I'm, let's just call them elevation escalators, that have been now about a year, year and a half ago, we started to take care of the assets in the downtown Seattle transit tunnel. At that time, there were 58 of these assets in play, and 28%, 28 of them were non-functioning. Right now, we have approximately four in the tunnel that are non-functioning. Right now, when one goes down, we have a contract in place where it, before when the, uh, the, our, our, um, Schindler is our, our vendor, would come out and we would ask them to come out during operating hours, normal business hours, which means that something could be down for hours or days before they were able to get to it. We have asked them to up their game and they have been amazingly co uh, collaborative with us where they'll come out at night and on the weekends and we are seeing elevators and escalators when they go down and when we're notified. They're coming out onto the site within one to two hours, and if it's an easy fix, and sometimes it is, they'll be back in service within half an hour, a couple of hours. If it's a harder fix, maybe a couple of days. We have an online tool that does talk about all the elevation escalators that are out. Our goal is 95% of them working at all times. Um, the challenge then becomes that some of the ones that are down are the newer stations, not in the tunnel. And why are those going down? Uh, I will, I'll be transparent that there's a lot more to this and a lot more nuance, so what I, I'm going to say might seem a little unfair to my team, and I apologize for that because I love my team very much. Uh, I have adopted them wholeheartedly. But when you're trying to make sure that a project opens on scope, schedule, and budget, and you don't have bidders on vertical conveyances, sometimes you have to pivot to make sure you meet those deadlines. And in this case, in some of these, these assets, there was a pivoting. They are still transit-grade quality, but they're not the higher-duty quality that we are expecting now. They don't have the redundancy that we are expecting now. The Bellevue Transit Center, I went there just a few weeks ago to look at a, inspect one of the items that's going on, and they have two very large elevators ad adjacent to each other, so we have redundancy. These assets will break. Anything that has a motor that has gears will break. 
However, we are doing a very high level of engagement with contractors. We're going to have multiple vendors to get them working as fast as possible. We're also putting AI technology on them so that when they do go down, we are notified immediately. I will say that the majority of, of these assets, when they do go out of um, service, it tends to be right now very frequently misuse, people jumping on them, vandalism. I won't go into the details of that, but we can go into the details of what they're, they're doing. And we're making them waterproof to prevent that vandalism. I think that gives you all the information you need on that. And the higher quality that we're expecting on future um, um, systems will ensure that they stay up more reliably and we don't have to put quite as much money into maintaining them. We are also looking to replace all of the vertical conveyances in the tunnel over the next seven to 10 years. It's a challenging project because to take that out and put it back in, um, the envelope to put in a heavier duty escalator or elevator can mean that if we don't, um, if we're not careful, we'll have to shut down service during this period where we're putting that in in order to access the tunnels and the system. We're trying to figure out what's the best way to do it, a, a heavier duty or a, a, a better, higher quality, but without that heavy duty so we don't have to shut down service. My point is with all these words is we have a plan and we're on it. Oh, it sounds like it. Yeah, thank you for the detailed <laughs> response. Told you I could talk Sorry for on this the one. question, <laughs> but yeah, it's just something that, you know, we, I know you hear a lot about and I, I we do too, so. If I can just one more indulgence. With all that said, if you're the person who's lugging your luggage upstairs and every time you go, you see that elevator escalator out, your perception becomes your reality that sound transit just can't get it right. We are working on better communication to be faster and speedier on wayfinding around these and to get them back in service because, again, perception can be reality and we need to manage that as well. Thank you, Julie. Uh, great presentation. It's exciting to get another shot in the arm with regard to sound transit, uh, and we'll look forward to following your success. Thank you so much again. I, I was an honor to speak. I apologize for speaking so much, but I, I'm pretty passionate about this, and you can't stop me talking once I get started. Okay. Well, we're, we'll see you out there. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Okay. Now it is time for the consent calendar. Before we have a motion, I would like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold for an audit of the accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $3,860,304.92 and bills in the amount of $5,483,839.18. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? So moved. Second. So moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any discussion? Uh, Councilmember Nixon. Thank you, Madam yeah, I, I have comments on a couple of the items on the consent agenda. The first one is Ordinance 4842, and this is the update to the Motor Vehicle Towing and Storage Service uh, Code. Um, I just wanted to thank the staff for getting this done so quickly. It was just like two months ago that this issue of um, the lo lo location requirements for vehicle storage lots was brought to our attention. And not only did the staff get that issue addressed, but did a pretty comprehensive updating of this whole code. And uh, I went above and beyond the call of duty, so I just want to express appreciation uh, to them for that. Um, we, there is an issue that actually comes up later in the LRM uh, related to animal control, which is um, in the LRM for animal control, it talks about the difficulty of people without cars of getting out to 
the um, shelter to pick up their, their dogs because the buses just don't go there. And we kind of have that same social equity issue here. If somebody's car is in stores, how do they get out to pick up their car? And, um, and this is something that we're going to have to keep in mind uh, as we continue. Um, I don't have a solution to that, but I want to at least keep that in mind and think about it. It's a really tough balance. Um, the other thing that I wanted to comment on was in the procurement report, which is item 10 on the uh, consent agenda. Uh, and this, the particular issue has to do with the contract for the fencing for the Houghton Park and Ride. And um, uh, I did send an email to the city manager about this earlier, and I think I copied the rest of you. But, but I'm curious to learn, and it doesn't have to be right now, um, how is it that Kirkland ends up paying <clears throat> to fence property we don't even own yet? And why does it cost $133,000 to do that? Um, uh, how, how long is that contract for, the rental of the fencing, et cetera? And um, I didn't see any documentation of where that money is coming from because $133,000 really is a lot of money. Um, so uh, for the city manager, were you able to look into any of that or is that something we can get a response about later? So I apologize, I did not see your email, but I can address it in the city manager report because <clears throat> I have right. a pretty good update for you on that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I just wanted to comment briefly on item number two on the consent agenda, the utility box art wraps. First, I just want to thank so much the Cultural Arts Commission and the city staff for your work on this. I am thrilled that we're bringing this beautiful and diverse art uh, to our city. You may recall during budget discussions, I wasn't thrilled that all the funding that you know I had requested in the last budget hadn't been spent. So I'm really excited to see this money getting spent and getting spent earlier on. This is exciting. I'm hoping that we get have a nice problem of the money is spent and you come to us asking for more money for more diverse art in the community. I think that would be a wonderful discussion and problem to have. You know, funding um, these BIPOC artists to bring this beautiful diverse art to our community is exactly what we heard from community members um, as one thing we need to do to create a, a greater sense of belonging in our city. So I'm so proud of this work. Um, well, I should mention that for those who aren't aware that this was, this was funded through specific funding in our budget for um, set aside for diverse art. I'd also additionally like to thank our human services staff. Um, recently, they proposed um, a handful of ideas to the Human Services Commission for how to spend the money that was set aside for BIPOC community members. Um, and one of those ideas was um, really cool and related to this. They were all wonderful ideas. Um, but to, to bring a community art project led by a BIPOC artist, um, such as a mural, to our community. There was um, a young black woman a few years ago who did propose an idea for a mural in our city um, to the Cultural Arts Commission. So I think that's just such a wonderful idea. This is something that um, the human services had st staff had heard from the BIPOC community is something that they would really love to see. Um, and I love this idea. And if we have any more funding um, for diverse art in our budget to be able to spend on that, I'd love to have us consider that idea from the human services staff. And if not, please come to us and maybe ask us for some funding to do that. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. 
I, two th I had two things that I wanted to, to raise uh, related to the consent agenda. I wanted to kind of build off of what Councilmember Falcone said because I was, I was planning on raising the utility boxes too. Um, and maybe just add on to what you said is I would really like to understand and have staff look into like how many utility boxes do we have in the city and what would it take to create a program to where it can be an ongoing thing? You know, what would that funding uh, need to be? Um, because it, there's a lot more um, opportunities out there, and I'd like to, I'd, I'd, I just don't want this to be a one-off uh, situation. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if staff could do that. Um, the second thing is I noticed that we have a progress report on the transportation master plan on the consent agenda, and this report noted that we had zero traffic deaths in 2022, which was you know, obviously really good to see. Unfortunately, we had a very tragic incident that occurred last, uh, earlier this month in Rose Hill. And it was a Monday morning, and while on a walk, uh, Jinko Kume was in a fatal collision. And Jinko was a beloved member of the local community. Um, and just on behalf of council, I wanted to wish her family and friends, uh, some who have reached out to me, much peace and strength as they navigate this, this difficult time. And as our Vision Zero plan emphasizes, one life lost to a senseless c collision is one life too many. So, um, Mayor, I'd just like to ask for a moment of silence. Have a moment of silence. Thank you. Okay, question is on the motion to, this is a roll call vote. Question is on the motion to approve the consent calendar moved by Council Member Falcone, seconded by Council Member Black. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Council Member Nixon? Yes. Council Member Black? Yes. Council Member Curtis? Yes. Council Member Falcone? Yes. Council Member Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes, thank you. This takes us to item number 10, our business agenda. The first item on our agenda is the <clears throat> 2023 Miscellaneous Kirkland Zoning Code Amendment ado Adoption. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So we are looking for action tonight. These are uh, code amendments that don't have uh, strong policy implications, but are cleanups in the code. And here to give you the presentation on that is our Planning and Building Deputy Director, Allison Zyke. Thank you, and good evening, Mayor Sweet, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and council members. Um, I'm not going to take much of your time tonight. I have five slides from here, um, but we are bringing this to you after a planning commission hearing last month and a recommendation to you um, and bringing these forward for adoption tonight. Just as a, a brief reminder of what the city manager went over, um, we tend to bring you a package of miscellaneous code amendments annually. These are generally um, Amendments without policy implications that are improving the code or improving the, clear, the clarity of the code to reflect current practice, um, maintain consistency with other regulations, in some instances correct errors we've found in the code, um, and also to codify policy direction from council. On that, we have, we have nine uh, code amendments in front of you tonight for adoption, and they tend to fall into kind of three buckets. I've rolled them up here just for brevity. Um, so the first bucket is code amendments that are just to, to make consistent policy intent that was already adopted by council, but perhaps wasn't carried out consistently throughout the actual code amendments. So the first one is simply um, updating an error, something we missed when we did the, um, the Houghton amendments. So 
Um, we're fixing um, a miss to make sure that FAR applies consistently throughout the city, um, as was the intent of council when you adopted those. The second is similar. Um, so this is uh, correcting an error uh, regarding retail storage services and where those are allowed. Um, and uh, that has to do in the Houghton Everest Neighborhood Center. The third is updating some references in the Homes Point overlay chapter to reference the adopted um, Homes Point drive design standards and also to correct just an inconsistent reference to tree density. The second bucket um, is simply clarifying the code just to make it more clear for applicants and then also to make it easier for staff to consistently apply that code and that has to do with land use buffer modifications, floor area ratio calculations, work hours exceptions, a non-conformance chapter just correcting um, something for clarity in that and then also improving the, clar the clarity of our average building elevation calculation plate in chapter 180 of the zoning code. And then the last bucket is kind of a miscellaneous amendment amongst the miscellaneous code amendments. And this one is related to master plan requirements in the TL3 zones. So the TL3 zones cover Evergreen Hospital. Um, and what the, this one came about um, by the request of Evergreen Hospital as they wish to come in and propose an update to their master plan for a potential expansion. And so when that um, expansion was proposed to us, we found that as kind of an, an oddity in our code, when their master plan was adopted originally, we codified some very specific square footage caps for, for the hospital and also some trip thresholds for the hospital. Um, so those were also captured in the master plan. They were also captured likely in the SEPA review that was done for that originally, but we also codified them. And so what we're proposing to do here to allow Evergreen Hospital to hospital to propose that expansion is simply to remove the specific square footage and trip threshold limitations and that will allow them to propose a new master plan. That master plan does have to be reviewed through a 2B process so that's a, a hearing with the hearing examiner and a recommendation to city council um, and there would be opportunities for public participation. Uh, the new master plan will require a new SEPA determination and also the review of a transportation uh, impact analysis. Um, those are actually in review right now, contingent upon this being adopted by council. Um, and my understanding from the applicant and the planner reviewing that project is that the trip threshold, the trips, sorry, proposed with the new master plan um, actually don't exceed those in the, in the code right now, uh, but we're still proposing and recommending to remove that trip uh, count from the code and then it would be reviewed with the master plan. And with that, I'll open it up for any council questions, and we are recommending that you um, adopt Ordinance 4844. Thank you, Allison. Very efficient. Questions, discussion? Councilmember Pascal. I just had a, a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. it's, it's on the, the subject that you just spoke to, Allison, regarding the TL3 mm -hmm. zone. So you, you, you mentioned that they had specific square footage and trip limitations. Uh, is that do you, do you know the the reason why that was that was done in the first place was it had it was it because they'd done an EIS or something and the EIS had identified that as the upper limit or do you have any kind of context to that's just it's I'm curious um, because that obviously was important for some reason at probably long ago yeah, you know, we, we dug into that a bit, and it, it did happen a long time ago, so much so that we're, we're having trouble <laughs> tracking the exact history down. 
Um, but there would have been a SEPA determination for the original master plan. Um, it's, and, and the reason that we're recommending we strike those very specific uh, square footage and trip counts is because we haven't done that for other master plans in the city, um, actually codified what those limits are in the zone. Um, and so that's why, to be consistent, we're recommending we remove them here, and then we still have the method to, to review them and make sure they're appropriate. Okay. Yeah. It's just more curiosity. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Can I get a motion to approve Ordinance 4844? So moved. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any further discussion? Question is on the motion to approve Ordinance 4844. Clerk, will you call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Yes. Councilmember Black? Yes. Councilmember Curtis? Yes. Councilmember Falcone? Yes. Councilmember Pascal? Yes. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Yes. Mayor Sweet? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. Uh, this takes us to item B, the electric, or electric <coughs> leaf blower initiative adoption. City Manager. Okay. Thank you, Mayor Mayor. So this is the second time you've heard this topic, and this uh, version that we're bringing back to you has all the council feedback that we've heard, and we are looking for council discussion and adoption tonight. And here to give that presentation is our Government Affairs Manager, Diana Hart. Good evening, Council Mayor, Deputy Mayor. Um, tonight, we are have a very brief presentation for you tonight, um, and I'm joined by Carly Droger if you have any questions for us at the end. Um, recapping the previous action that you've taken to date, um, as a refresher, a couple of years ago, you adopted your sustainability, sustainability master plan that included um, specific uh, notes and goals of transitioning uh, landscaping equipment from uh, gas-powered to electric. Um, last year, you adopted your biennial budget that included $500,000 in ARPA funding to support the city's internal and community transition to electric leaf blowers. Um, earlier this year, you adopted the city work plan that included um, goals of implementing the sustainability master plan. And just this earlier this month, you discussed the draft resolution. Um, at that meeting, you discussed some of these um, potential changes that we incorporated into the resolution that's before you tonight. Um, we captured um, some of the big policy changes in the memo and included them in track changes in the report. So hopefully that uh, captured all the things that you discussed at your last meeting. Um, we covered um, expanding stakeholder engagement to include specific groups, um, I, a consideration of exploring a regional approach and what that might mean for the, the process overall, emphasis of an education campaign for the community and for businesses, um, incorporation of this effort into legislative agendas in the future, inclusion of um, the financial incentive to be specifically for the household transition in addition to the business community. Um, call out for the acknowledgement that the noise complaints have been a big uh, or origination for this uh, effort. And the three phases that are proposed are targets that will be influenced by the previous phase and not necessarily specific requirements. And consideration of a staggered replacement approach um, as equipment improves, but also with our procurement practices. So next steps, council tonight can adopt, further amend, and then adopt, defer action to a later date, or take no action. Um, if and when council does approve the resolution, we will begin implementation um, and obviously keep you all updated on how things are going and um, check back in as needed. With that, turn things for back to you for discussion, and then as a noted, Carly and I are available for any questions that you have. 
Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, so why don't we start with a resolution? Councilmember Curtis. Um, Madam Mayor, I want to make a motion to approve resolution 5585, authorizing the city manager to implement the electric leaf blower initiative. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Discussion? Councilmember Curtis. Thank you. Um, I just want to compliment you. You did a, both of you did a great job of synthesizing all of the feedback that you received from us. Um, I thought it was really well done. I know the community is very excited that we get moving on this. So um, I think that we should take the next step forward and improve this resolution. And then I'm looking for the opportunity forward to the opportunity to collaborate with our neighbors, neighboring cities on this and also discussing this with our legislators during the interim. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Oh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, uh, earlier today, um, I sent out a, an email that contained a few proposed amendments. Uh, there were a couple, three other amendments that the staff decided to accept as Scrivener issues, editorial issues, uh, so I won't address those. Um, but I'd like to go through th uh, the amendments in the order that they're in the, the email that I sent out. Um, the first amendment um, is a, an adjustment to the third whereas clause beginning on line 14 of the resolution. And it's to align the text of the resolution with the text of the previous resolution 5578 that we adopted on February 21st, and that was the city work program. And this resolution quotes the city work program, but it quotes it based on the original text that was proposed by the staff and, and uh, did not reflect amendments that we accepted. Um, and so uh, this amendment would strike from that third whereas clause the words climate justice as we struck them in the work program. So I'd like to move uh, approval of uh, amendment number one. Second. It's been moved by council member Nixon, seconded by council member Curtis. Further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? The motion carries. Thank you. Um, second amendment. Um, is to simplify uh, the text in the seventh whereas clause beginning on line 37, uh, which um, says research also shows gas-powered equipment has negative health impacts on operators and negative environmental impacts from extracting natural resources and burning fossil fuels, uh, and then continues on that contribute to climate change. Um, and I, uh, this amendment proposes to strike those last five words that contribute to climate change. Um, and I move uh, adoption of amendment number two. Do I get a second? Motion fails for, for lack of a second. Lack of a second. Thank you. Uh, the third amendment and the fourth amendment, um, as I read through the draft resolution, um, it struck me that some of the terminology that was being used was inconsistent with the terminology that we have um, um, more commonly used recently uh, when talking about uh, DEI issues. And um, uh, 
in particular, the Third Amendment, um, which uh, affects the eighth whereas clause beginning on line 41, it uses, uh, that whereas clause uses the phrase minority members of the community. And I think that minority has kind of fallen into disfavor. Um, I asked our DEIB director uh, or manager if there was a more current alternative. She suggested culturally diverse. And I understand there may be some alternative proposals, uh, but just to get the discussion started, I'd like to move approval of Amendment 3. Second. Moved by Councilmember Nixon. Second. Second by Councilmember Black. Further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. Um, Amendment 4, similar. Uh, used, uh, this is in the 10th whereas clause beginning on line 51. It uses the phrase low-income community members. Uh, and even back when I was in the legislature, we passed a, a statute that said we should uh, always refer to the people first. Um, and so we wanted to uh, propose to amend that to community members that may be experiencing economic constraints. And again, this is language suggested by our DEIB manager. Uh, and with that, I move uh, approval of amendment number four. Second. Moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Black. Any further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Thank you. The Fifth Amendment is to the 11th whereas clause beginning on line 55. And um, you'll recall that when we were talking about the city work plan, we decided to delete the words climate justice because that was kind of a vague concept. And this whereas clause uses a similar clause, environmental justice. And so uh, to be consistent, I just wanted to propose striking the clause that says bearing the environmental justice components of gas-powered equipment in mind because it wasn't clear to me exactly what that meant. Um, and so, uh, but, so that would leave the whereas clause as research also shows an environmental trade-off by converting to electric equipment where the mining extraction production and recycling processes for batteries also causes significant environmental harm. And uh, so I uh, move approval of Amendment 5. Been moved by Councilmember Nixon. Second. Seconded by Councilmember Black. Any discussion? All those in oh. favor, please signify. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Councilmember Black. I did want to just quickly explain my second. I, 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 I'm not sure what that clause means either. Um, and I just in, in favor of a clear, concise statement. Thank you. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. All right, the Sixth Amendment. Um, there, this is in Section 1B, beginning on line 108. Uh, it's, it reads, reduce negative health impacts caused by gas emissions. And it just struck me that we're not actually talking about gas emissions. Um, we're talking about emissions from gas-powered leaf blowers. And so this amendment would replace gas emissions with emissions from gas-powered leaf blowers. So I move uh, adoption of amendment number six. Second. Um, moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Curtis. Any discussion? 
All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you. <clears throat> and then I'll talk about Amendments 7 and 8 together. Uh, one of the things that struck me is that uh, while, of course, people could voluntarily begin um, replacing gas with electric-powered uh, landscaping equipment um, earlier than we will eventually adopt an actual ban on gas-powered equipment, I think the people of the city are looking for action sooner than that. And what I would really like to see us do is um, see if sooner than, than the timeline, earlier than the timeline laid out in this resolution, we could identify ways to um, enhance our enforcement of the existing city noise regulations on gas and electric-powered landscaping equipment. Um, for example, um, the decibel levels at the property line, those kind of things. And, I, and I'll have some more comments about this later uh, in calendaring. Um, but I think it's, it's important that we try to identify other ways to address the noise concerns earlier than the timelines. And so the proposal is to add a new subsection E to section one of the resolution that says develop mechanisms to effectively and immediately improve enforcement of existing city noise regulations, uh, KMC 1148.070 and KZC 115.95, on all uses of gas and electric powered landscaping equipment to provide relief to residents prior to conversion or technological improvements. And so I move approval of Amendment 7. Second. We move by Councilmember Nixon, second by Councilmember Pascal. Further discussion? Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So uh, uh, this was an amendment that we only saw earlier today. So I just want to have a question, and then um, I have two questions. Uh, the first is um, the if I had had a weekend to spend with this, I would have taken a look at the code references and made sure those were the proper code references. That's what I do. Uh, I want to make sure these code references came from city attorney's office or. Yes, they're they're the they're the correct references to the municipal code and the zoning code. Councilmember Black. OK, good enough. Um, and then my other comment, it, this is one of those words that sort of jumps out at you. Um, if you're a lawyer drafting contracts <coughs> and legislation, that's the word immediately. Yeah. Just one of uh, that adjective, that adverb uh, is something a lot of times to be avoided. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable having the, I, I think it might be enough to simply say develop mechanisms to effectively improve enforcement <coughs> rather than suggesting we can do that immediately. Um, and so, if uh, I, I, I would like to make an amendment, I would like to propose an amendment to the amendment. Can that just be a friendly amendment? I don't think so. Okay. Unfortunately, I mean, you may. Councilmember Nixon may may second it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would like to make a. Uh, I'd like to uh, move for an amendment uh, to the amendment that would strike the words "and" immediately and simply leave the beginning of that sentence to say "develop mechanisms to effectively improve enforcement." Okay. Second. It's been moved and moved by Councilmember Black, second by Councilmember Nixon, to amend the amendment as he just described. Any further discussion, Councilmember Falco? Oh. Okay. 
We're good then. Um, all those in favor of the amendment to the amendment, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Last one. Now we're back on the amendment. Oh, we're back on the amendment. Okay. So we're back to amendment number seven. Further discussion? Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. So we received an email from um, Director Weinstein earlier today, I believe, on just a little bit of clarification on what is legally allowed. Is that directly connected to this? Am I... Uh, Councilor Mendickson, is that? Well, that's a good question. Did I see that one? So there was an email that talked about um, leaf blowers and noise standards and during what hours they can be used. Um, I haven't fully processed it, to be honest. <laughs> I skimmed it. I had time to skim it. So my question is, um, can we speak to what is actually allowed under law, because if I'm interpreting this email correctly, it's okay if they're louder as long as they're not like excessively used like all day, every day for a week straight or something like that. So what will we be enforcing? Because what I have heard from the community is that it's during working hours, which are the hours this, this is allowed, that there's a lot of concern. Originally, we got emails from folks who had kids who were doing, <coughs> or were, um, doing remote school, and from a lot of folks who have transitioned to working from home, and it was really challenging during the day when they were trying to hold meetings. I haven't gotten the sense from the community that this is happening early in the morning or late at night that are outside the allowable hours. It's really just the, the noise level during the hours that I think it's already permissible. So I'm trying to understand the intent of this amendment. Is it a problem that people are violating that, or are you proposing that we actually look at, it doesn't sound like you're proposing we look at changing that, but that we enforce what's already there. Thank you. Well, yeah, so I sent a separate email um, uh, a couple days ago um, in, in, where I said that we had been hearing from people in the community, and we heard during public comment tonight that people are under the impression that lawn equipment is exempt from the noise ordinance entirely. And my reading of our noise ordinance, those two sections that were referred to, is that is not the case. What it says is that they are presumed to be um, a, a public nuisance uh, during overnight hours, but during the work day or during basically daylight hours, um, they're allowed to be used, but my reading of it was that they still have to obey the the uh, decibel level limits at the property line specified in the WAC. Um, after our, the comments that we received during public comment tonight, I decided to poke a little further into the WAC. And if you look at WAC 173.60.050, it actually says this, and I think this is what people in the, in the community group were referring to, it says, the following shall be exempt from the provisions of WAC 173.60.040, which is the one that sets the decibel limits. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 10 p.m., um, and then A, the very first thing, sounds originating from residential property relating to temporary projects for the maintenance or repair of homes, grounds, and appurtenances. 
Now, you could read that and say, this means that landscapers on residential property are not subject to the decibel limits 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. And if that's what people are referring to, then we have a problem because we can't fix that ourselves. This is in state law. Um, uh, but that said, I still think I would like to ask the staff to give us recommendations, which is what, what this amendment is basically asking for, on how we can enforce whatever the noise ordinance is that we have right now. Um, uh, we've had a lot of discussions about noise enforcement in the past. Um, a lot of the focus has been on muffler noise and busking noise, less about targeted enforcement of landscaping equipment noise. Um, and that's what my intent is, is to ask the staff to come back and tell us what are effective means used around the country, around the world, to enforce these, this issue of landscaping equipment noise. And that's, that's what I'm hoping for. And, and understanding the relationship between this WAC, uh, this WAC and our local ordinances is an important part of that because we do incorporate this WAC by reference in, into our local ordinance. Thank you, Councilman Nixon. That was my interpretation as well and my understanding, which is, and you kind of hinted at my, my second question, was really understanding how much of a lift this is gonna be and what it would entail, because you know, I was under the assumption that it may entail you know, advocacy at the state level, right? And is that what we're proposing that we're doing with this? There may be nothing that we can currently do, right? Um, so, I mean, I think it'd be a little bit more comfortable if it was like exploring, explore the development of mechanisms or something like that, because I'm just not confident or I'm curious from staff how much work this would be and how confident you are that we could develop mechanisms. And I see that Adam has joined us. Adam. Yeah, thanks, Mayor Sweet. And Councilmember Nixon, that's, yeah, it's a very nuanced and complicated issue. And I, we could probably spend a whole hour discussing, um, you know, how are, how are noise ordinances enforced in regards to leaf blowers? Um, and I think you're right, you know, that WAC provision, Councilmember Nixon, that you were citing, our general interpretation is that that does exempt residential lawn maintenance from these noise standards. Um, and generally speaking, um, and this was um, described a bit in my email earlier today, we generally consider, you know, normal landscape maintenance activities when um, folks are using um, leaf blowers or other landscape maintenance equipment and you know in uh that's that's operating soundly within the hours that we identify in the code for when these this equipment can be used to be compliant with the noise code um the point i was trying to make in my in the email is that um there are probably situations where the noise is very um is is um happening for long periods of time um and maybe it, there's multiple pieces of equipment being used at one time that could trigger an exceedance of our noise standards in the code that are also referenced, um, incorporate references in the WAC as well. So um, again, very complicated nuanced issue. It's a very difficult thing to enforce because leaf blowers and other landscaping equipment travel around a property at any given time. The noise fluctuates sometimes um, across an hour. The, um, the noise standards are not um, established at um, for instantaneous maximum noise levels. 
they imply some sort of averaging over a period of time that's not um, necessarily identified in the code. So it's just a very nuanced issue. And I think we can bring back some options for more effective enforcement. Um, and um, I probably um, raise more questions than answer them, but hopefully that provides a little bit of background in how we um, do noise enforcement for this stuff. It does, thank you. And that last um, statement you made was really helpful that you feel like you can come back with options. Does this have staff on the hook that if none of the options are feasible, we're okay? Because to me, it seems clear to develop them, mm -hmm. that we have to develop them. But if there is no feasible option, then we're okay with that result. They can report that to yeah. us, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Blair. Oh, uh, I did raise my hand before, thank you, Madam Mayor. I did raise my hand before Director Weinstein uh, spoke, so he did answer some of the questions. One thing that I did pick up on in the email received from the director earlier today was that state law doesn't preempt us from our ordinance from restricting the hours, and we have actually done that. Yeah. So eight to eight on weekdays and six to, I don't know, seven or something on weekends and holidays or something like that. So and that's enforceable. And I did... I did interpret this amendment as basically developing mechanisms to effectively enforce our existing code as it is with its integration with, uh, with state law. Okay. And I kind of understand the next, the next amendment may get a little bit more to, although not clearly, but may get a little bit more to uh, what we might consider in the future for even improved enforcement, maybe even zone uh, or uh, Code amendments. Mm -hmm. Okay. Question is on the amended amendment moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Pascal. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Councilmember. Thank you. And the last one um, is associated with the preceding one. <clears throat> Basically, adds this um, improved enforcement of noise regulations to the timeline in 2023. Um, so I'm making a bit of an assumption <laughs> that staff would be able to come back to us with recommendations and we would be able to approve, approve those uh, later this year, um, uh, which would be a couple of years earlier than any uh, gas leaf blower ban would go into effect, which is later on scheduled in 2025. Um, so I'm going to guess that Councilmember Black would like to strike immediate uh, here as well. <laughs> but um, I will make the motion, and then he can move to amend what he wants to amend. Um, so I move that we approve Amendment Number 8. Second. We move by Councilor Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. Discussion. Councilmember Black. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. You know, actually... Uh, because of the context, it's, I think it's more clear what immediate relief here means. Uh, immediate relief means uh, relief in 2023. I don't have a problem with the use of the term immediate here. Thank you. Question is on the move. <clears throat> Moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember... Sorry. <laughs> Madam Mayor, I'd like to also amend this motion. Well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Mine won't be so complicated. Um, this motion or this section um, speaks to who we're going to reach out to as regional partners. Uh, point of order. Yes. Did we vote on amendment number eight? We did. No, we no. did not. Oh. But we yeah, don't. We did. Yeah, we did. did we? Yeah. This okay. is. Hey, we did not. We did not. This is amendment eight. You're amending the amendment. 
Are you amending the amendment? Or I'm amending your amendment. Oh, okay, it is there. Okay, yes, thanks. Sorry. Can I make one? But, you know, just yeah. just one comment on the manager. Uh, yeah. So, uh, not for or against the amendment as Councilmember Nixon has described, but deploys improved enforcement of noise regulations does presume one we've identified them two we have the extra resources necessary and they are deployed so it's very proactive strong language that assumes you're going to make some decisions that we haven't put in front of you yet um so <laughs> that may take another code enforcement officer as an example right or it may take so i just i just want to make sure you're thinking that through as you as you look at that language Okay, I'm going to turn it back to Council Member. You want me to finish mine? Okay. And if you would like, you could do what he suggested. <laughs> <laughs> trying to find another verb. Okay, let me do mine first. So this section talks about regional partners, so I would like to amend the motion to add the Washington State Nursery and Landscape Association, which is a statewide organization of landscape professionals that might have some input on the previous discussion we just had about noise ordinances. Um, good potential partners for regional and statewide collaboration. They also have a full-time lobbyist on staff. Second. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone to amend to include the organization's Washington list State listed. Yes. Sorry. Um, further discussion? Question is on the amendment to the amendment. Moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Question is on the original amendment. Madam Mayor. Uh, Councilman Nixon. Yeah, I, I, in consideration of the, the comment from the city manager, um, I'm thinking about proposing that we insert um, any council approved between deploys and improved. So it says, and deploys any council approved improved enforcement. Oh, that's kind of awkward. Council approved improved enforcement. So it would say that when the council approves any improved enforcement measures, then they would be deployed. So we. That'd be great. I think that. Would council consider that to be an amendment? <laughs> so I'll move that we insert the words um, any council approved after deploys. Okay, it's been moved by Councilmember Nixon, second by Councilmember Falcone to, Falcone to adjust the words as he just described. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 The amended, now we're back to the amended amendment number eight. All those in favor, please, uh, moved by Councilmember Nixon, second by Councilmember Falcone. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Uh, opposed? Motion carries. That was exhausting. <laughs> Back to the original motion moved by Councilmember Curtis, seconded by Councilmember Falcone to adopt the amended resolution 5585. All those in fa favor? Please Discussion. Discussion. <laughs> Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, I just wanted to for the benefit, I know we all recognize this, but want to mention it for the benefit of the public. The action we're taking tonight does not actually ban gas leaf blowers. It sets up a timeline uh, on which the, the, uh, some things will happen immediately, like we get on an immediate path to transition the city's equipment from gas to electric. Um, but 
mostly it's asking or directing the staff to bring us back recommendations for future consideration. Um, and I'm fine with that. I think this is something that needs to be studied further and I look forward to getting that further information and recommendations from the staff. And so I plan to vote yes. Thank you. Thank you. Question is on the motion moved by Councilmember Curtis, second by Councilmember Falcone to adopt a resolution 5585. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion is approved. Thank you very much, Diana and Carly. This takes us to item number C, the Kirkland Way, Cross Kirkland Corridor Low Bridge Safety Evaluation Briefing. Do we want to take a break now? Okay. Sorry, Joel. Sorry, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to take a 15-minute break and be back at 9.16. 16? No. Is it 10? Okay, fine. <laughs> Thank you. We are back in session following a short break, uh, and we are at our business item C, the Kirkland Way Cross Kirkland Corridor Low Bridge Safety Evaluation Briefing. City Manager. Okay. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We wanted to check in um, on the uh, Kirkland Low Bridge. Um, and here to get that presentation is Daniel Rawlings, our transportation engineer, and Joel Funt, our transportation manager. Okay. So... Um, Good evening, good evening, Madam Mayor, City Council. Um, I'm going to be turning over to Daniel here um, immediately, and he's going to be talking a little bit about um, a little bit of the background of the signage that's been installed here in the last couple of years, give an update on the latest uh, data collection, crash, crash information that we've collected, and look at some of the historical data as well. And then also provide a little bit of research, some information on some research we've been doing on some of the latest um, treatments for low clearance bridges like this. And then I'll, I'll do a wrap up. So I'll hand it over to Daniel. Good evening, Mayor Sweet, City Council. Thank you all for uh, having us on tonight. Uh, here to share an update on the Kirkland Way low clearance bridge. Uh, what I think most of you all know is the uh, truck eating bridge. Um, Focus of this presentation tonight is going to be on uh, crash mitigation has been done here, reviewing the uh, bridge-related crash history, and uh, discussing discussing next steps. Um, so some brief, brief background information. Um, at the beginning of 2022, the transportation group was asked to investigate uh, various uh, crash mitigation efforts to uh, reduce the number of crashes. Uh, with the bridge, uh, with the concurrence of the city council, we came up with the plan that you see here. It's an enhanced signing plan that was implemented in December of 2020. Um, prior to the installation of these signs, there were just uh, 11 foot six six inch, 11 foot <laughs> six inch low clearance warning signs in each direction. Um, we added several new warning signs and in order to increase the, the visibility of the new signs we installed them on both sides of the road and these signs are also oversized and larger than the previous signs that were installed here um also like to mention that in the summer of 2021 uh local community members so hung the uh shark banners on the bridge which you could see in the uh the previous slide 
uh, which is as of earlier this year, uh, the city is now in possession of, and we believe these banners have been successful in getting local media attention on the bridge and in general, uh, making drivers more aware of the bridge and uh, the low clearance situation. So going into the crash history, uh, before we dive into the numbers, a few brief notes on uh, how this data was gathered. Um, it was obtained through our internal crash record database and also uh, obtained from WashDOT in order to cross-check and uh, provide a more extensive crash history since our own database only goes back to 2012. Well, WashDOT has data going back to uh, 2007. Um, crash port reports were then verified uh, or were then reviewed to verify that the uh, bridge was struck and also to confirm uh, the direction that the, the vehicle was traveling. Um, and these... Um, the crashes that you see here are just the reported crashes for which there is a police incident report. It likely does not capture you know, every incident of a truck striking the bridge, but this is the, the data that we have. So looking at the, um, the available crash history and stages from 2007 to 2015, there were relatively few uh, reported crashes per year with the bridge like around two or so, except for outlier year in 2013, where there were seven. Um, crash numbers with the bridge start to tick up in 2016 and 2017 to around seven to eight crashes per year. And then in the three full years prior to the signs being installed, um, we're averaging over 11 reported crashes uh, with the bridge per year. Um, but these numbers have fallen in 2021 and 2022, um, dropping to seven and six respectively, which is a over 40% decrease in the, the average number of crashes per year. And so the crash level appears to be closer to the 2016-2017 levels prior to the three-year spike in 2018 to 2020. Um, a few other trends that I want to uh, point out is that the, the number of crashes don't seem to be strongly tied to the to number of vehicles on the road, as you can see with the average daily traffic volume, um, where volume is about the same now as it was in 2019 when crashes were higher, and volume is even lower than it was in, in years past when, when crashes were lower. So um, doesn't really seem to be a correlation between volume on Kirkland Way and the, and the number of crashes. Um, also like to note that while um, these cra crashes with the bridge can uh, be quite dramatic, um, Thankfully, um, crashes that are occurring are not injury-related. Um, only a handful over the years have been. Um, and the final thing I'd like to point out is that a clear majority of crashes involve a vehicle heading in the eastbound direction. Nearly 75% of crashes involve a truck traveling eastbound on Kirkland Way. So... Um, while these last two years are promising, we'd still like to wait for three full years of data. A larger sample size will allow us to more confidently say that crashes have been reduced here long term. And um, if the current trend holds true of you know, five to seven crashes per year with the bridge, we feel we're at an um, acceptable level. You know, this represents a nearly 40 to 50 percent uh, crash reduction from the uh, previous years, and that number is quite significant. Um, if there is a desire to uh, uh, look into further mitigation, we are open to 
exploring other ideas. Um, one example that has been brought up in the past is this uh, low clearance curtain system um, that cities like uh, Spokane and San Antonio uh, have installed in recent years. Um, the way it works is that they've attached uh, flexible delineator posts, which are those kind of reflective guideposts that you normally see on the on the side of the road, uh, plastic hollow tubes, and they've hung them um, from from a traffic signal mast arm and at a height equal to what the the low clearance height is. So when a oversized truck is traveling on the road, they'll strike the, uh, the plastic tubes, uh, make a good deal of noise, uh, probably rattle the driver a little bit, and hopefully alert them to the uh, to the low clearance uh, situation. Um, we had our our group had previously expressed some reservations about a system like this. Um, they do generate quite a bit of noise when they're struck, and Kirkland Way is um, in a pretty heavy residential area, so that might be a nuisance to some of the residents there. Uh, this also is not a standard traffic control device. It's not mentioned in the manual and uniform traffic control devices, uh, which is the federal guidelines on, on traffic control devices. Um, the Federal Highway Administration does have a process for experimenting with new devices. Um, however, I'm not sure if Spokane or San Antonio pursued this method. Um, we did have conversations with staff from both those cities and neither mentioned doing so. So we would assume that they did not, but we don't know for sure. Um, if we were to go down the same route, um, there could be some liability concerns with people filing claims against the city for uh, damages that a system like this might uh, do to their vehicles. Um, but on the, on the flip side, um, in our talks with San Antonio, they have said a system like this has been highly effective in reducing uh, crashes with the bridge. Um, San Antonio uh, installed this curtain system in early 2018, and they said they were having around five crashes per year with their low clearance bridge. And since uh, their curtains have been installed, they've had three crashes total. Um, they've also told us that they have not received um, any claims from drivers for uh, uh, damages to their vehicles, nor have they had um, any noise complaints um, from people living in the area, though their location is not as residentially dense as, uh, as Kirkland Way. Um, their number one suggestion for us, if we were to pursue um, a similar uh, type of countermeasure would be to have um, the system designed and stamped by an engineer. Um, I believe they did this with their initial ins um, installation. Um, you know, they you know just I think had a traffic signal pole and you know hung hung delineators from them. That you know that's not uh, their their typical uses. So you know it's kind of a bit of an unknown of you know what kind of impact trucks hitting the delineators might have on the mast arm and the connections and the foundation. You know they do um, believe their staff do regularly inspect those uh, joints and connection, but you know it it would be more of an insurance to have uh, engineered plans for for something like this. And I think we would recommend doing the same if we were to look into a, a system like this. So that I will 
hand things off to Joel. Okay, thank you, Danny. Um, so in, conclu in conclusion, um, we would, based on our evaluation, we feel like the additional signing signage has improved the advanced warning so that people um, are aware of the bridge as they're driving towards it and can take the, you know, the appropriate steps. And then um, the banners and the associated media attention has really increased general community awareness. You know, people know where the bridge is and all of this has led to a reduction in bridge crashes. So at this point, um, especially with just two years of uh, data, feel like no additional countermeasures are needed at this time. Um, but in the short term, we would continue to try to identify and implement ways to increase community awareness through outreach to local businesses, um, continuing to uh, communicate with um, the, you know, the route finding uh, companies that provide like Apple and Google that provide uh, wayfinding um, via, you know, apps and things like that to see if we can get their attention. We have done some of that and we have not been successful up to this point. Uh, and then we would continue to monitor the bridge-related crashes annually and report back to council if we see there is a, a significant increase of any kind. And then, of course, uh, in the long term, um, as part of the transportation master plan update, there is the opportunity to evaluate and prioritize larger improvements to the Kirkland Way corridor, which may or may not include, you know, uh, more significant modifications to the corridor and the bridge and and that kind of thing. So, um, so with that, we are happy to answer any questions. Um, and uh, so, thank you. Thank you, Joel. Council questions? Discussion? Councilman Nixon. Well, I'll just say I, I very much appreciate all the work that went into this report and it's something we've been looking forward to for a while. Um, I agree with the recommendation that we don't need to take any other action at this time. I mean, um, when we talked about what further actions might be, it was all pretty expensive stuff. So we're not, not recommending that we jump into spending a half a million dollars on something is good. Um, uh, and I, I think that the idea of seeing if Google or Apple or Bing or others who have mapping software could do something uh, to help increase awareness would be would be good. But I think right now their frame of mind is to monetize that information for their commercial users as opposed to just typical users. Um, the, the other thing that we talked about at one time was whether it was possible to reach out to drivers who had crashed their vehicles into the bridge and ask them if they had any idea what could have been done to prevent it. Have we thought any more about the potential for doing that? Um, so uh, we have not done any sort of after the fact, but I know that uh, Danny has looked at the crash reports and there is some summary of information on those. Um, I'm not sure, Danny, if there's any trends or anything you want to describe there. In the, the issue with trying to establish trends from that is that the crash reports didn't always list a reason why the driver like you know failed to miss the signs or they were looking at their GPS. Um, 
So the one, I do know that the ones where a specific reason was listed, um, a lot of them did seem to be that they just didn't see the signs or didn't know what the height of their bridge was. Some of them seemed to be like uh, new drivers or they were driving um, that truck or with that company for the first time and their truck wasn't properly uh, marked with the, the, the height of the mm-hmm. truck or um, I, I, unfortunately it just wasn't mentioned often enough in the reports to really find solid trends or come to a, a, a solid reason. This is, you know, this is the the singular reason or this is the the most common reason why uh, the, the the truck driver uh, crashed with the bridge. So that would be interesting if KPD might uh, ask their officers to ask that question when they do a crash report to see if we can collect that data over time. But anyway, um, thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing the updated data in a year or two from now. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Thanks, Madam Mayor. Thanks, Danny and Joel, for the, the work and the presentation here. I had a couple just follow-up questions. One is you mentioned that if you see any significant increase in crashes, uh, you'd, you'd come back to us. In your mind, what would be significant? Um, I think that that would be uh, seeing um, the kind of trend that was headed back towards up towards that spike that we were seeing a few years ago. So like the 10 to 12 a year kind of yeah. mm-hmm. um, number. Okay. And then the other question I had was, uh, you talked that about the slow, slow clearance warning system um, as a potential option to consider if we're still seeing a, a concerning trend down the road. But it's, it sounds like it's, it's kind of, you know, obviously it's just an idea <clears throat> with a ballpark cost estimate. Do you have any idea what it would cost to, to confirm, kind of do a feasibility evaluation and say, yeah, this is actually truly possible um, and firm that up a little bit more. I, I guess I would, the one thing that I was thinking about is is if if, if things do continue, unfortunately, um, be nice to know a little, like, be more certain that that is really feasible. So we did <clears throat> talk to our uh, CIP manager and, um, and he, did you know kind of a quick look at that, and he felt like in that three to five thousand dollar range, we could probably do at least a cursory five percent kind of like just very general look at you know is this feasible? What does this look like? And that kind of thing. Okay. I think though. So I guess my only comment would be you know as as you monitor the crashes you know over the next year or two, and you start to and if unfortunately we do see kind of an uptick. I would just recommend that you do that work before coming back to council so that at least we have, you know, we'll have that option. We'll know that cost um, if, and, you know, um, to be able to kind of take action if, if it's necessary at that point. <clears throat> That's all. Great. And thank you. Um, this, this treatment does seem to be gaining some interest. Um, you know, particularly related, you know, the other three locations are all 
railroad bridges where the um, the the treat well the the Spokane, the San Antonio, and then the Renton example, which is not the same. It's a, it's a different context, but with all three of those, it was very much the the railroad coming forward in some cases paying for this um, because they were very, you know, there. It's very difficult, you know, very challenging to, you know, move those bridges, and so um, so it does seem to be gaining some traction in those areas. Danny, there was one other city that you'd actually heard was interested in the San Antonio. Do you remember? Oh, you're muted. Now? Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it was Kansas City. It looks like they were going to be moving forward with a similar system to San Antonio later this year. So I think if we were to, um, as if that was to, we were seeing a concerning trend again, we would you know, probably do a little scan again and see what else we could learn from other places about advancing this treatment even further. And, and but yes, definitely we could look at that. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in that, particularly if, you know, crashes continue. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Uh, this takes us to item D, the 2023 state legislative agenda, of the le legislative update. Kurt. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. <clears throat> so to give you legislative update number seven, once again, is Diana Hart, our government relations manager. Good evening, Council. Hope you can see my presentation all right. Um, we go. Um, so as always, the same bucket. So we talk about where we are in session, how it's going, and some time for some discussion. Um, starting off on our calendar, Today is the 100th day of the legislative session. And while there are only a few days left, there is still a lot that is undecided. These last days are key for sorting through differences in bills between chambers and negotiating final budgets. Every policy that isn't necessary to implement the budget needed to receive a vote out of the other, uh, or needed to receive a vote out of the other chamber last week. And 465 of the bills that were introduced this session have survived that cutoff, 95 of which are bills that we are tracking. So looking at um, how it's going this session, um, as this is the last presentation during session, I'll dive into a little more of an update on each of our legislative agenda priority areas. The next few slides will highlight legislation that is still alive in some form for each of our priority areas, starting with housing, Senate Bill 5045 has passed the Senate, it's passed the House, and with some minor minutes, amendments, it's also passed the Senate again, and will now head to the governor where he has the option to sign the bill into law, take no action and let the bill become law without his signature, veto a section of the bill, or fully veto the bill. As the bill looks like it's going to go to him in the last five days of session, he will have 20 days to sign the bill. If it had gone to him before these last few days, he would have had only five days to act on the legislation. The next is 1628. Um, in a very interesting turn of events, the REIT for Affordable Housing Bill received an executive session in finance last week and has been referred to rules. Both this and the 1% property tax cap bills are back on the table as options for increasing affordable housing. There is a long way to go for either of these bills to make it over the finish line this session, but there is a possibility that we may end up with one of these options. I'll share a little more on the property tax cap bill on the next slide. 
House Bill 1110 just this afternoon received a concurrence vote by the House on the Senate amendments. So this bill too heads the governor's desk after it received signatures by the House and Senate. And then 1337 is an ADU bill encouraging um, ADU encouraging bill that passed the legislature. Uh, this requires cities to allow ADUs, removes or limits some regulations that cities have used around ADUs and prohibits future restrictive covenants around construction or development of ADUs often seen in um, homeowner associations. One bill you don't see here is 5466, the transit oriented development bill. Last weekend, a proposed amendment was introduced that caused a lot of increased concern by affordable housing advocates that called into question some of the implications the bill might have on our own 85th station area plan development. Those concerns were shared with our delegation. And then a significant number of amendments were introduced by both sides of the aisle to address those numerous concerns that had been brought up by many groups. Um, and unfortunately, there was not enough time left before cutoff to find a path forward for the legislation. It is anticipated that the bill will be thoroughly reviewed and reworked over the interim and will come back in some form for further consideration next session. On to the property tax cap, as I mentioned. Um, I'm going to also break your 10 slide rule this week, but felt this was a big enough update to warrant that extra slide. Just last week, the Senate introduced Senate Bill 5770, which is another proposal to address the property tax cap. The previous introduced legislation, specifically 1670, is assumed to not be necessary to implement the budget and it was as it was limited to local governments. So a new broader bill was introduced to keep the concept alive. It has a very long journey with just five days left in session, especially as the bill has only been introduced and hasn't had any hearings, but as we've seen this session already, sometimes we can skip some of those steps. It is incredibly encouraging that the legislature is more seriously looking at this option than they have in many years. So we hold out some optimism that it might um, get some traction this year. On sustainability, there were many bills to support uh, these efforts this session, but there didn't seem to be as much momentum to tackle some of the larger policies than we saw for some of our other priorities. Two of the bigger policies that did make it far include incorporating climate change as a new element into our comprehensive plans and a long-term strategy to provide battery producer stewardship. Several pieces of legislation to support efforts like the crisis care center coming to Kirkland continue to make their way through the legislature this session. Each of these bills would play a role in permitting and staffing behavioral health support centers one of which still needs to make its way out of the legislature, but it is in active negotiations to get there. While the constitutional amendment that was introduced early in session didn't move forward, several pieces of legislation to support reproductive health care are continuing. One new bill was introduced uh, late in session is 5768, which authorizes the Department of Corrections to utilize their pharmacy role to provide abortion medications. This bill has made it out of the Senate and it's making its way through the House and is anticipated to pass the final hurdles before the end of session. And the legislature was quite active on gun safety measures this year, having already passed legislation related to industry liability, firearm transfer requirements, waiver of firearm right clarification and emergency domestic violence orders. Um, the assault weapons ban is in negotiations as the House declared one of the Senate amendments as out of scope and object of the bill title. This afternoon, the Senate reheard the bill and it will now go back to the House for concurrence. Um, and so it's 
very close to getting out of the legislature and is anticipated to make it out. The budgets are all in active negotiation, but we are continuing to be optimistic that the KPC and the CKC funding requests will be maintained in the capital budgets. I do want to add that in addition to the projects we're supporting, the Kirkland Boys and Girls Club has a $150,000 request in the Senate proposal for their community play field, and the Lake Washington Institute for Technology has $39 million in both proposals for their new center for design building. So um, if Kirkland might make out quite well this year, uh, which is exciting to see. And that takes us back to our final section, the discussion. Uh, uh, some quick updates on two of the bills that we've been tracking that aren't our big priority bills are 5536, the Blake Fix. Um, this legislation had some substantial amendments in the House and is in negotiations as it awaits concurrence by the Senate. AWC is at the negotiating table for the legislation, along with the bill sponsor and policy leaders from both chambers. An agreement is expected before signing die, but it is still unknown what the final details will look like for this legislation. And the final, vehicular pursuits, 5352 was one of the big upsets this year. It has passed the legislature. The Senate concurred on the modest amendments by the House, so the bill will now be routed for signatures by the House Speaker and the Senate President before heading to the governor's desk. The bill does have an emergency clause, so it will go into effect upon action by the governor unless he vetoes that section. And with that, that concludes my presentation. As always, happy to answer any questions and turn things back to you. Great. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, Diana. I again have to express my gratitude for this amazing legislative work group team. We are rocking, and as Diana just said, we're still tracking 95 bills. Um, uh, the TOD bill, I'm really hopeful that we will be at the table during the interim working on that bill. And one of the suggestions we've made is that we invite the delegation and any other interested parties to walk them through our station area plan process for a sort of a model tool of how to do TOD well. Um, the group is starting to talk about winding down and other work that we're going to do during the interim. Um, and I just have to say personally, I'm really proud of the legislative agenda that we started this session with, and I'm very impressed with the bills that have moved forward this year. Any further discussion? Deputy Mayor. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and thank you, Councilmember Curtis. I uh, concur with what you're saying. When we started the session, we were really scaling back expectations, and you look at that list, uh, Diana, that you just went through. It's very, very impressive. Thank you for your work. The discussion on 5770 came up at a Sound Cities Association deputy mayor's call last week. Everybody was uh, pleasantly surprised that this bill is still alive. Uh, like Kirkland, uh, every city in this region has these diverging lines of future budget sustainability issues that this, this uh, really needs a, a fix at the state level. Um, is there anything that we can do as council members to help support that? Uh, I recognize the challenges of dealing with property tax given we only have five days. I did send an email this weekend with Kirkland's support for 5770. I'll, I'll forward it to council. Um, um, we have heard today that there is a member of our delegation that we're going to ask the mayor to reach out to personally. Um, but uh, it never hurts for any of you as council members to reach out to your delegation with support. Wow. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, can I, uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Can I just make, uh, it, to the extent any of my colleagues are reaching out to our delegation and talking about um, uh, 5770, the 1%, 3%, uh, together, uh, it, it won't be surprising if in those conversations uh, the REIT legislation also comes up, and so that there might be discussion of of this uh, these two sort of, sort of forms of tax legislation or tax policy. Um, uh, one thing that uh, we've discussed as legislative work group and that um, the city's lobbyists, I think, found uh, interesting and compelling and might use in some of their discussions around this issue it's just that with the REIT bill, we're, we're, it's a significant investment in, in affordable housing. That affordable housing is going to be in denser neighborhoods around uh, transit um, and walkable neighborhoods. Uh, with that, there's going to be significant infrastructure um, uh, uh, investments that are going to be, have to be made by cities. Um, and so it, in some ways, the two are in, in, not so much in conflict with each other as inextric possibly inextricably linked with each other. Um, so um, to the extent anyone is having that conversation, I think that might be helpful. Thanks. And if I may add, um, I just forwarded the 1% property tax bill to all of you. Um, we have received, the mayor in particular has received very positive feedback on the Seattle Times editorial that we did on 1628. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Diana. Uh, I think we will see you at the next meeting, right? For a wrap up? Okay. With that, we are at council reports. And I'll start with Deputy Mayor Arnold today. Thank you, Madam Mayor. No report. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal. Yeah, a, a few items. Mm -hmm. One is that have our monthly uh, regional transit committee meeting tomorrow. And two pretty big subjects are on the agenda. One is the, the plan for electric buses, I'm going over that zero emission fleet and get an update on that. And then the service recovery plan, uh, rolling out the rest, the remaining part of the service that was cut back during COVID. Uh, something just to, to let you all know about that I unfortunately will not be able to attend the community appreciation event next week. Um, I apologize for that. I have a work a conflict that evening. You're gonna you're gonna hate yourself. But <laughs> <laughs> I might. So someone else can sing my part for me, I guess. <laughs> or who knows? Jim may make me tape it or something. I don't know. Um, and then lastly, I, I want to request a legislative, um, a legislative request memo. Um, let me kind of talk about this. Uh, so I'm just going to read this. So I wanted to request a LRM to consider options for additional pedestrian facility investments along both sides of the 124th Avenue corridor uh, between Northeast 85th Street and Northeast 116th. Street. This corridor is seeing a variety of new development activity. It's targeted for Metro's future rapid ride K line, and it will likely see additional demand over the next decade from new development in both Totem Lake Urban Center and the 85th uh, station area. 
And as part of this LRM, I'd be interested in understanding how completing facilities along the corridor could be considered as we update our transportation master, master plan and uh, updates to the capital improvement program, as well as whether there's any strategies to pursue uh, available safety grants out there to secure funding uh, in a more timely manner. I'd also be interested that the LRM explore, consider interim uh, lower cost improvements to, to address high priority uh, pedestrian facility gaps. And um, with all that, I, I do also want to recognize that there are a lot of needs across the city. So I'd ask that any of these potential options that staff brings back also consider this request in the context of all the other uh, priorities um, and gap and pedestrian gaps in the city. Second. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? The motion, the motion carries to create the LRM. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Flacone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, that's a tough one to follow, but I'll keep it brief. I'll let um, Councilmember Curtis maybe mentioning our recent SEA PIC meeting and the uh, mural ribbon cutting at the Corcoran Performance Center. So I won't go into detail on those to keep my comments brief. Um, but I am really looking forward to this Thursday evening, um, be sitting on a panel at, at uh, Friends of Youth. It's a celebration of youth event that's centered around youth homelessness and ensuring youth experience zero days of vulnerability. So there's a few folks on that panel and I'm honored to be part of it and looking forward to hearing what the others have to say as well. Excellent. Councilmember Curtis. Mayor. Um, let's see, Councilmember Black and I attended the Norcook Neighborhood Association and I just want to thank the chairs for their invitation to attend. It was a nice evening. Um, I'm looking forward to the Earth Day celebration with Sustainability Ambassadors on Saturday. I am riding the ride. I'm really glad I have an e-bike since I'll be riding with a bunch of high schoolers. Um, and um, uh, Councilmember Nixon and Councilmember Falcone and I attended the ribbon cutting at KPC on last Friday. That was a great event. And I sent you notes about pics. So. You did. Thank you. Councilmember Pascal, didn't you all, aren't you also doing the ride? Oh, yeah. Yep. Excellent. I am. I know I, 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 for, I forgot about it. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> great. Councilmember Black. Requirement that you disclose all of your <laughs> upcoming activities. Um, uh, and in that spirit, I'm going to disclose that I'm joining the mayor at the uh, ribbon cutting for C's Candy because C's Candy is a favorite of our family. So, uh, Mayor, I'll be I'll be there to support you and to get some free chocolate. <laughs> um, so I'm excited about that. Welcome to Kirkland C's Candy. Um, I did really, I wanted to say one note about the uh, Norkirk um, Neighborhood Association meeting. Um, it was really nice of the chairs to reach out and invite us. And also, um, you know, one of the main topics ended up being around um, uh, property taxes. And just, you know, conti continues to remind me um, just how um, interested, of course, our, our, our homeowners are in uh, property tax and how how much education there there can be around this topic uh, because it is a complex issue in the state of Washington um, and so I really enjoyed that there was an opportunity to actually speak directly to to I don't know 30 35 residents um, on um, specifically um, how property taxes uh, work uh, in the state um, and I had um, shoot I had one more 
thing. What was it, Madam Mayor? Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, I don't know what it was. I'll, if I think of it, I'll maybe poke my hand up. Thanks. Okie doke. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Actually, I do have something to report this time. Um, I had the pleasure on Friday morning to attend the NORCOM annual uh, assembly with Chief Harris, and it was great to see uh, Bill Hamilton again. It's been a while. Um, I will also be at the C's uh, candy ribbon cutting, but you cannot tell my endocrinologist. <laughs> um, we have a couple of uh, interfaith uh, events coming up. Uh, on Sunday, April 23rd, that's this coming Sunday, uh, FIRE is having a dialogue that may, may, may be of interest to you all. Uh, the, the title is, What Should Be the Relationship Between Religion and State? Mm. And the focus will be on <clears throat> you know, areas where various uh, religious minority groups are persecuted by government action. Um, and then also on Saturday, April 29th, is the Anti-Semitism Symposium sponsored by Congregation Koalami and the city, and everybody's invited to that. Uh, lastly, <clears throat> it did not make it into our uh, annual list of proclamations, uh, but April is Records and Information Management <laughs> Month, uh, the 28th in a row. And I did want to take the opportunity to once again thank and recognize our city clerk and staff for the excellent job they do in managing city records and responding to records requests. We are really the example for the entire state. Thank you. Thank, for, thank you for doing that. Uh, Councilmember Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. I did remember what I meant to say. I should have been in my email and not in my calendar. Um, so it does look, uh, I was at an event, I wanted my colleagues to know I was at an event, um, I think it was last week, I uh, had a chance to talk to a small group of um, uh, King County residents about the work that Kirkland's doing on crisis clinics. Um, and um, in attendance was Andrew Lewis, who's a Seattle uh, City Council member, and he does a, uh, a podcast. And um, because of... Uh, he got he he got excited about the discussion and excited about what Kirkland's up to and so it looks like just so my colleagues know I'll be interviewed on a podcast uh, looks like probably on Monday um, and by Andrew Lewis and some communication staff from Seattle just to just to understand and hear the story of of, of Kirkland's success and uh, and our our partner city's uh, uh, success in getting a crisis clinic cited in Kirkland so will you be able to share that with us the podcast. Mm -hmm. I will ask. Good. Okay, thanks. Great. Okay, um, most of my water work, I think you've been getting updates on. We do have a special subcommittee meeting tomorrow at 9.30, so I'll be pulling out of Claudia's event a little bit early. Um, and that meeting is to sort of lay down the groundwork for trying to uh, arrive at a federal agenda that, um, that Regional Water Quality Committee is going to be pursuing. Um, Kurt and I and Diana, I believe, are going to be scheduled to have a one-on-one -on -one with uh, Senator or Senator with uh, with uh, Congresswoman Del Bene, 
who wants to come for a tour of what our projects might be that need federal consideration. So I think I think we're going to have a meeting to discuss that beforehand. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the city manager. <clears throat> so thank you, Madam Mayor. Before I get to my report, we have two legislative requests memo responses uh, that we're going to tee up. I'm going <clears> to <throat> go to the podium and tee up one for Chief Harris, who is at the KJC, and I'll pull it up, then she'll speak to it. And then we have our second one on short-term rentals, and Michael Olson is here to do that one. So just give me a second. So can you see that, Sherry? I can. Okay. And council can see that. All right. And you can hear me okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Proceed. All right. Um, good evening, Madam Mayor, council members. Uh, responding to the legislative request memo on animal services ordinance update and an increase in licensing um, sales. And so uh, the LRM was in your packet, and I just wanted to go... If there are no questions on the information that was provided, go to the four options um, and get your input. And option number one would be status quo, no change, no impact on operations. Obviously the least amount of staff time, <coughs> but does not provide any additional authority to the ACO or park rangers. Number two is the targeted update of animal services ordinances to address their original issue identified by council member Nixon to permit the animal control officer not to return animals to owners in certain cases. And then a full review and update to the entire animal services ordinance um, to exclude expanding the authority of the ACO and park rangers, updating fees and fines, and providing authority to the courts to reduce dismiss violations when animal owners provide proof of acquiring a pet license. And then number four, a full review of animal licensing that may be combined with other options to include point of sales licenses, research into licensing programs not currently utilized by the animal services program. At 10 o'clock, I don't, it doesn't sound as articulate in my ears as <laughs> I would like it to be. But um, those are the four options and I just am here to gather some input from you on uh, which way, which direction you wanna go. Okay, so I see some hands. We'll start with Councilmember Curtis. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, well, I want to thank Councilmember Nixon for bringing this forward and for KPD for doing the LRM. As most things, a simple request becomes complicated very quickly. <laughs> and um, I'm involved in animal welfare. I'm, invo I'm on the board of Homeward Pet. So I I'm looking at this through this lens. And I feel like the memo focused a lot on what would be, what would make life easier for KPD? Uh, but we also need to show compassion for the animals, their welfare, and support for our, um, for our, the pets themselves. And when the option number two, which is other municipalities have authority to evict an animal from the city of Kirkley, Kirkland, what happens? You know, what happens when we evict this animal? Is it taken to a shelter and destroyed? So, so 
I think we need to d dive deeper into the what happens after this animal is evicted and why are we evicting this animal? Is it just because it's a nuisance or is it because it's a dangerous animal? So we've got m more things to answer before we can move forward on this. Um, and to me, the purpose of animal control is to support residents through education and support responsible pet owners rather than making money through licensing and enforcement. So ultimately, what I'd like to get to is a full review of our animal licensing and are we doing best practices in um, providing education and support for animal, um, animal owners and their pets? Should we go, be going to the Everett shelter, not only because of the equity issues that were raised in the memo, but uh, Everett is not a no-kill shelter. So if we are evicting animals, are we then filling up shelters with animals that, you know, and we're all, I'm looking down the row, we're all animal owners on this. So there, there needs to be more thought into what we're trying to achieve with this. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about is um, if an animal's loose and we feel like the, the owner is not taking a good care, a good care of it, is it because the owner is abusive and neglectful, or is it because they don't have the resources to fix a hole in their fence? Or we have a senior citizen with maybe some dementia and the animal continues to escape from them. So again, to me, it's about how can we help people and how can we support people? Um, so my suggestion is that we look at the original question of Councilmember Nixon, which is number two, but I need more information about what that means to an evicted animal and what is our ultimate goal and where does the animal go and why we're evicting an animal. And then I'd also like to, to down the road, and this is a bigger project, so I recognize that this will take time, but I would like us to look at our animal licensing and our ordinance looking at uh, reaching out to pet owners, animal service providers, shelters and determine what the best practice is and what we can do to support animals. And some of the things not only can we do around education, but microchipping and that sort of thing to keep animals out of shelters. So, so I'm really thrilled this was raised, but once I started reading the memo, I'm like, we have a lot more work to do on this. Um, so again, <clears throat> let's take a deeper look at number two, but let's also put on a work plan what the goals we're trying to achieve with our animal um, animal service ordinance and how can we do best practices. And like with all things, if we spend the time to do this right and we reach out to animal welfare experts, we will set the standard for uh, our, our regional partners on how to do this well. So thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, the easy thing to say would be I agree with everything Councilmember Curtis just said. Um, I, in option two, never thought of it as evicting the animal. I thought, about, thought of it as rehoming the animal and that the animal wouldn't be banned from Kirkland, but that owner, if they have repeatedly shown that they're irresponsible and neglectful, would not be allowed to get that particular animal back. But I agree with you. I mean, the goal of all regulation in Kirkland is education. and. Uh, figuring out why people are having pr problems with compliance. And so I completely agree with the idea that 
it can't be just an automatic thing. You know, your dog gets out three times, you're done, right? It has to be um, an option, but a last resort type of option. And in the particular instance up in Kingsgate where this arose, this was a recurring problem for a couple of years, over and over again. So, um, and the animals were pretty aggressive. Uh, my feeling is I want to do option two, three, and four uh, on an appropriate timeline. So um, I, really, I really want to see us do a comprehensive look at it, kind of like we did with the tree code. Hopefully it doesn't take a decade, <laughs> right? But, but really do a public engagement process because we, we, as you all know, when we created uh, or brought animal services in-house, we basically just took the county code and made minor edits to it and then adopted it. And it, the public really never got an opportunity to look at it and uh, to have an influence on it. And I would like to see, that's why I would like to see us do a comprehensive uh, look at it. And again, if we can make it a statewide model code that we did the way we had done with our public records code, I would love that. Um, and then I hadn't brought up in my previous comments, the option four, but I think that's a great idea as well. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I don't like to think of it as just how do we raise more money, but, but I do definitely want animal services to be self-supporting, and I don't think it is self-supporting right now. Um, and so if we, can, if we can have it set up so that the owners of animals are paying the cost of the program and enabling us to have more animal-related services, like helping to fund dog parks and other things, uh, then I think that would be a plus. Um, uh, but, you know, the question is, what should the timeline be? And I'm not in a hurry on any of these things. In fact, I'm not even in a hurry on option two, because the, the recent incident was the first time in a decade that we've had that kind of a problem, and hopefully it will be the last time. But just want to be prepared for the possibility. Um, so those are my thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, first off, Chief Harris, I think we're all slightly less articulate at 10 p.m. <laughs> and I think you were, you were quite articulate, so thank you. Um, I, well, I agree with the comments of my colleagues, so I'm glad that they went before me so I don't have to talk as much. Um, I also agree that it would be, that I would like to see it be financially self-sufficient, this program. That said, um, I would also like to see us add the um, pet licensing fee to the universal low-income discount program that we're developing. So let's go ahead and um, add that to the list unless there's some objection. Thank you. Thank you, um, Councilmember Pascal. I was going to say that I support, you know, options three and four and two um, for that matter. Uh, I guess on the licensing on number four, I'm assuming it also includes what we discussed a few meetings ago, where we saw where we we see the continual decline in licenses over time, and that that was that's apparent in our quarterly a dashboard that we get um, from the police department. So it's I think it is sustainable right at the moment, but it's 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 not on a good trajectory, uh, and that's that's the issue. Um, especially as our population is increasing, but our licensing is going down, that it's not intuitive uh, to me. So that I definitely want that to be included as part of option four. Um, and then 
I'm really intrigued, like with option three, one of the things that intrigued me with option three is this allowing the court to reduce or dismiss violations when um, animal owners, um, you know, either get a pet license or, you know, um, I, yeah, I think giving the court more uh, flexibility, I think, is going to be really important. So we'd like to make sure that that's considered. Thank you. Thank you. Councilor Deputy Mayor Arnold. Oh, thank you, Madam Mayor. <clears throat> I concur with everybody's um, interest in pursuing options two, three, and four. Um, to the question of what happens to animals um, that, that may be surrendered, I'll tell you my family's experience. They go into foster care, and then sometimes there's a foster fail that happens, and the animal finds a loving home. That's, that's what you want to have uh, happen on this, and I think there are some circumstances where we need that authority. To some of Councilmember Curtis's comments on option three, I read the memo a little bit differently. It wasn't just for the efficiency and effectiveness of uh, KPD, animal control officer and the park ranger, but being able to enforce um, regulations that uh, are in place that those officers don't have the authority to do so. And I think there is some cleanup that needs to happen. What I'm The thing that concerns me is what I'm hearing is a pretty big work plan item that we're talking about a couple of months after we've adopted our biannual work plan. So while I think this is something that I is of interest, um, I wouldn't bump anything on our work plan to do this, and I think um, we should be looking at some options on, on timing of when this could happen. Chief, I appreciate the memo that said that that um, you uh, believe that it could be considered within current workload, but when we start talking about outreach and other things, this is a much bigger uh, project than what's reflected in this this LRM. And um, so I think this is something we need to continue to discuss. Thank you. Well, thank you all for your comments. Um, I agree with most of what has been said. I think we're going in the right direction. I, too, am worried about the, the size of, of the, the body of work. Um, and I wonder if this is something that we could investigate bringing in, you know, interns from various organizations that are, that are involved in animal welfare to help us with. Um, it, I mean, it might be a project um, where somebody could just come in and design or at least do the research to find out what kinds of options are out there, what what are some of the mecha er, mechanics of uh, a really healthy animal control program. So uh, I think I'm in support of what everybody here has said. We don't have the, if we don't have the time and we don't have a lot of resources to dedicate to this right away, I think it should be on a future work plan. City Manager, do you have what you need? Well, I'm trying to, so in your policy under LRMs, if there's no motion, then they basically just go and they're filed and they're not dead necessarily, but they don't proceed. <clears throat> so I guess maybe I'd suggest that, so I'd make a motion that um, options th two, three, and four are explored. The city manager would develop um, a timing and work plan and appropriate time to 
start to phase them in and bring them back to the council over maybe a longer period of time. Something like that that sort of moves it forward but gives us the flexibility to decide when we can uh, allocate the resources to it. I move that. Oh. I was going to say, I was going to say that, what he said. <laughs> been moved by Councilmember Nixon, second. seconded by Councilmember Curtis to do what he said. <laughs> All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Uh, thank you very much, and we will, we will figure this out. All right, our second LRM, uh, Michael Olson, can you take down the first one? Too? I think you have. Okay, <laughs> just, just unshare it, right? Okay, so this was uh, also a response to a legislative request memo on um, short-term rental ordinance review. need help. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> and I did get the note on the universal low-income discount for pet licenses, too, so just wanted to acknowledge that point. That would obviously, we'd deal with that in the context of that ordinance, not separate, so. <clears throat> and then I do have two topics after the LRM. So just to, yeah. <laughs> Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and Council Members. A very short presentation, just the five options from the legislative request memo on reviewing the short-term rental um, code. And uh, what staff is looking for is direction from City Council on which option to pursue of one of those or, or one that you come up with. <laughs> I will note that on option five, uh, waiting until the vendor data on short-term rentals is available. I just signed the contract with the vendor today. We've been waiting to get it through legal, and I received the signed copy. So we should be receiving um, lots of data on the um, from 80 different resources that they have that they track days paid, days rented, days advertised. And so we should have a lot of data in a few months. Great. Okay, discussion? Black. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, option five, um, uh, let's get the data, let's understand um, uh, the problem statement, um, and then we can make an intelligent decision about what we want to do. That would be what I'd propose. Moved by, <laughs> move by Council Mayor Black, seconded by Council Member Curtis to adopt option five. Discussion? Council Member Curtis. Just clarification. So. After we get that additional data, then we would still look at all the other options. Is that the idea? Yes. Okay. We would bring the data back to council to to kind of give a a picture of how many we have in short-term rentals, how many days uh, they're renting them, how many are in violation, how many we are pursuing to get licensed, and, and what steps the council wants to take from there. Okay. Thank you. And I just want to remind us that in our conversation with the Planning Commission today, I think it this sort of is that instance that Scott Reeser was talking about in ter terms of inviting people to join um, our business community or recognize the fact that they are businesses. And to, so just to sort of add that as a caution, mm -hmm. that we don't want to be heavy-handed necessarily. We want to welcome them into the community. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. Did we vote? No, we didn't. Okay, sorry. It's yeah. <laughs> so moved by Councilmember Black, seconded by Councilmember uh, Curtis uh, to 
adopt op option five. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? <laughs> Motion carries. Back to you, City Manager. Okay, thank you. So I have two updates uh, before the calendar updates. So the first is to respond to Councilmember Nixon's question about the $133,000 for the fencing. So uh, this was a little bit of City Manager license and how I did this. Um, the 133000 is actually two parts. One is the temporary fencing that's up there currently, but it's also to pay for permanent fencing, permanent nice fencing that would be appropriately located on the other side of the um, sidewalks and so forth. But we can't put that fencing in until we own it. <laughs> so we executed the contract with the um, fence company for both actions, thinking at that time that we would get it. And I went ahead and did it anyway because, so basically we have the fence on order and when we can actually own it or get access to the property, we can put a permanent fence in. It'll be a permanent nice fence. Um, the budget that we're using is actually the budget acquisition that the council approved, given that we had $10 million set aside for the purchase of the park and ride, and the stated price is $9 million. But we've also notified WashDOT that one of the things we intend to do as part of the negotiation is basically reimbursed for anything that we are basically investing. So the intent is to get that money back. I can't guarantee that that's going to happen, but we have it budgeted in the acquisition pot. So that's where the 133000 came from, and it, it creates those two parts. And we put up the temporary fencing anyway <laughs> um, at, with their full knowledge, but we did it because we knew that if we didn't get the fencing up, it wasn't looking like King County or the WashDOT was and we wanted to make sure we didn't get in a situation where they start to get occupied with no redress. Um, and so we're having ongoing conversations with both King County and WashDOT to keep the space nice. And we are not in charge of it yet, but we are taking whatever actions we need to take to, to keep it nice. And I will be going to the South Rose Hill Bridal Trails com, um, meeting to talk about it as well. On May 9th? Great. Yeah. Thank you. So, so does anyone have any questions on the, on the fencing? Um, second one, I just want to give a, a racer update um, as the president. We have uh, very good news, which is we found an extraordinary administrative assistant uh, for the racer project who actually knows Kirkland's finance system very well. Munis has an excellent relationship with our finance department and has an exceptional job with very challenging billing and other systems. The less good news is it's Heather Lands Brazil, who is the administrative assistant for the Parks Department. Oh. Uh, so I'm in a little bit of trouble with my Parks Director. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, we're very excited for her, for Heather. She's got a long uh, history and passion for this type of work, and I think she's going to be exceptional for both us and for our regional partners. But now we, just so you all know, because that will have an impact on a lot of the work that's going on in parks, so we're going to try to help get a good replacement for her as soon as possible. So. Um, but when that, she will be starting in May in that position, and so then Carly Jorger would stop being the um, uh, secretary for the racer board and would also, all of the administrative stuff would then be handled by Heather. So, um, so things are happening with racer. It's, uh, we're continuing to move forward. Uh, we're also going to be scheduling a presentation by Brooke Bittner, the obviously new executive director of RACER, to come forward and talk to the council. She's scheduling time to meet with each of the individual five agencies. So probably the first meeting in May she'll be here. If not, it'll be the second meeting in May. And she'll give an update on all of the activities going on with RACER, as well as the um, cases and things that they're also handling. So not just administrative stuff, but actually impact of the program. So. Much more to come, but I just want to make sure I give you a heads up on all that. So. All 
All right. And then any other calendar updates? Oh, I'm sorry. Councilmember Leff. Oh, um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, City Manager, just real quick for for us or just for folks listening, can you describe briefly what RACER is doing today, uh, right now, as far as its activities oh, sure. and its number of mental health professionals and that kind of thing? Yeah, so the uh, RACER program is still not yet fully integrated. So what we have done is we are, uh, the Kirkland community responders are continuing to function as Kirkland community responders. The radar navigators are continuing to function as radar navigators. Uh, Renee Cox, who's a Kirkland supervisor, is managing the Kirkland uh, positions and reporting to Brooke. And then Brooke is overseeing the radar navigator. So we have all of the still the original uh, folks are still doing the same work that they're doing both in Kirkland and beyond. And we have the positions posted and we're still heavily recruiting for the other six vacant positions. So uh, we hope to add additional staff as fast as we can. The challenges. They're hard to get, but the good news is we have managed to retain all the ones that we do have, and so, so far that's going really well. So. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, there's a few things that um, are happening in the community where people are looking for kind of updates and explanations, and I just wanted to toss these your way, and if you can come back to us at a future meeting or an email with an update on what's happening. Uh, the first has to do with the roundabout project and the impact of the delay of the sewer main replacement component of that. Um, we oh. got an internal email, but I have not yet seen an external announcement from WashDOT about what's actually going on there and how the schedule's been affected. And people are very interested, particularly about the impact on 132nd Street. Um, the second thing is, uh, what's the status of the project uh, the, on the right turn lane on 116th Avenue at 124th Street. I know there was some delay there because of having to shrink the size of utility boxes or something, but if, it would be great to get an update for the public on that. Uh -huh. uh, the third thing is um, the Lake Street and Kirkland Way uh, scramble project, and we've received emails from a number of um, business owners, event sponsors concerned about the current timing, which is having that full closure at the peak of summer tourist season. Right. Right. And uh, they're curious as to whether it could be delayed even just a couple of months. And, and then the fourth thing, of course, uh, which we heard some during public comment tonight, is about the Park Lane consultant report. And um, when is that expected? Um, so that we could just let people know what the next step is in the city's decision-making process. I can highlight two of those really quickly. So the lake, um, the scramble project is actually, we're gonna bring that back to the first meeting in May with updates and options. Uh, essentially you can delay, but there's a couple hundred thousand dollar cost to delay. So we'll lay out some choices for the city council at the May 2nd council meeting. And you can make a decision at that point. Um, and then on the, Park Lane Consultant Report, that's going to come to the staff in early June, and we'll schedule it for the first council meeting after we get it, so it may be the first or second meeting in June. For the first sort of, here's what it says, but the decision-making process can be as long as the council needs it to be to make an informed decision, so, uh, but that's the timeline for that. Great, and the other two, you probably have to ping Washington yeah, to, to figure check out what's going yeah, on, so, yeah. Oh, but we'll make sure we get that for you and, and the community. Great, thank you. Okay. 
Uh, and so, you know, calendar updates, and that's all I have, Madam. Oh, I do have a calendar update. Oh, okay. I will be going to a conference in June, from June 1st until June 5th in Columbus. And uh, the, I will miss meeting, but it's, uh, it's the last chance I have uh, to go to an actual mayor's conference, so I'm looking forward to it. And going with uh, mayors of uh, Issaquah and Redmond. Forward to it. Okay. I believe that takes us to adjournment. Thank you all for a very busy and pretty brief meeting for a change. Thanks very much. <laughs>